0: Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome once again to Pain Week. I hope everyone is having a stellar time. It's like information overload, and now we all have to deal with that little alkaline tide post lunch, too. So, all right, for those of you who don't know me, my, my name is David Glick. I told them I would introduce myself so that we don't have to let them introduce me. Um, I, I've had a very interesting career from the standpoint of being able to evaluate difficult, chronic, and complex pain patients, largely backs, necks, and a lot of musculoskeletal pain, so in, I don't know, we used to laugh and think that half my patient population was probably post-op low back pain and, um, and things along those lines, so my, you, know, you always get good at doing what you do over and over and over again, so what might be the strange kind of case that you might see would be the sort of case that I would see over and over, and that's why I seem to have this crazy insight for picking out the complicated patients and then apparently Dr. Argoff likes to pick on me because he was picking on me a couple of times today. But truthfully, I don't know if any of you sat through the the myelopathy session today, there were a number of conditions that I frankly had never even heard of in my entire life. So I can't even begin to think of how you would be able to identify or differentially diagnose those cases, except to say that I might be able to, when you see that patient on that initial clinical examination, because even though we're gonna be talking about back pain today, Every single new patient, we get a general status neuro exam. They still get you know, a little bit of an exam that focuses towards their neck, even if it's a back. You always listen to the patient because the little details that the patient doesn't necessarily volunteer, but that you have to pull out of that history, sometimes gives you the direction to know that something else might be wrong. Because all too often, when we see patients that are referred for back problems, it might not be in the back. I mean, the classic example was, and I cringed, I, I literally cringed when I saw this one, and I think I mentioned it in one of the other sessions. It was a patient who was having a dissecting abdominal aneurysm with referred back pain who is, had already gone through a couple of injections and was going through an active course of physical therapy that involved rehab and exercise. You think we have a problem with that? <laughs> you know? So where was somebody when it came to that exam? And that's the key. So, what we've prepared for you today and it is not a session to talk about the, you know, the, the prevalence of back pain, because we all know what that is. I hate when people stand up and start talking about what the prevalence of back pain is in society and how much it costs, because we all know in this room that's a pretty rare condition. We hardly ever see anybody that has back pain. So just in case you ever see that rare patient, um, what I wanted to do is I wanted to pay a lot of attention to some of the little clinical pearls that we have that'll either pop up during some imaging study or some kind of exam finding or some kind of clinical scenario, but also to look at the way we look at the patient so that maybe we can add a few things to our clinical examination so that we might be able to better recognize some of these things. Because no matter what anybody says, the secret to a successful clinical outcome has nothing to do with looking at what the standard treatment for a protocol is, it's being able to diagnose the patient adequately and then triage what that patient needs to treat them. Doesn't that sound correct? So it's all in the diagnosis, really. You start with the right diagnosis, you, you, you really slant the, the likelihood that you're gonna have a potentially favorable clinical outcome. So that's what it's all about today. Um, I've tried to include some more treatment stuff in there, and I'm more than happy to talk about a lot more treatment stuff in there after the end of the session, because we have a little bit of a break time after that, too. So with that, I have nothing officially to disclose. Our primary goals for the day are we want to be able to identify some of the common primary and secondary pain generators we see that result in this rare thing we see called back pain. Um, I want to be able to talk about uh, how some of the examinations we see are basically completely inadequate when it comes to being able to differentially diagnose those problems. And then I want to point out, again, some of the different things that we can see, that we can use during our clinical exam to get a better idea of what's going on so we get a better starting point. So we start the voyage this morning by talking about the fact that back pain is really not a pathology, is it? It's a symptom, correct? So if you think about that, Look, i like using knees for an example how many people in the room have a knee problem okay enough of you so what's your knee problem if you don't mind telling everybody it hurts. it hurts the one example i was going to use which is you never tell anybody that oh i just have knee pain i get the first one so somebody else what's your knee problem meniscus what do you got psoriatic arthritis someone else what do they got acl, ACL. So the point is that if someone says what's wrong with your knee, do you say I have knee pain? And that's everyone else in the room except for uh, Leslie Leslie, because Leslie says knee pain. But everybody else in the room is gonna say no, I have uh, uh, an ACL, I have a meniscus tear, I have psoriatic arthritis. So you're diagnosing the condition better from the start because do you expect a patient with a meniscus tear to do really well with an ACL repair? Would you even expect that to be true? No, so if somebody has a, meet, like a facet-mediated disc pain and you treat it as a disc pathology, what's your expected outcome? If they have sacroiliitis, what's your expected outcome if you're treating them with an epidural? So it's all about the diagnosis, and I really, truly wish when you see a study that comes out that says, let's say, oh, we're going to investigate the clinical success of intraarticular facet blocks for the treatment of back pain and you read the, the patient's selection, and they made no attempt to actually identify a facet-mediated back pain before they started running this study. The study should be entitled, hey, we're gonna do intra-articular facet injections for facet-mediated back pain, and by the way, here is our protocol for identifying a facet pathology. I find that really scary. A number of years ago, we did this little game where I said, okay, it was like family feud. Name for me the things that cause back pain. You know, surveys said disc herniations was what everybody first answered, Or I even heard people say pinched nerves, and I hate that, because it's like a misnomer. But then everything started getting a little bit quiet. Well, there are more things that cause back pain. It's not just about disc herniations and pinched nerves, but how often does the patient walk into your office, especially if they've seen other providers, and you're asking what the problem is, and instead of even saying, I have back pain, they say, I have a herniated disc. Well, great, so does the guy next to you, maybe and he doesn't have pain at all. And then even if you had a herniated disc and you had an epidural and it made the pain go away, do you still have a herniated disc? Yeah, maybe. Some. There really is no single treatment to back pain. So anytime I see a session where, that talks about, ooh, we got this new latest greatest thing and it's going to treat back pain, I just laugh. Because it's not about determining what's going to treat back pain, which is a symptom for everybody. And if you notice, a lot of the clinical trials and all the little case examples that they are giving here even at Pain Week seem to be about back pain, pretty interesting. But it's not about whether or not there's a single treatment to fix back pain, it's what treatment should be for what kind of back pain at what point in time. So if you're doing a back exam and you're that first-line person to see that patient, you basically are the triage person because you have to determine, or to the best of your ability, what is going on with this patient so I can say this patient gets an epidural, this patient gets PT, this patient gets a facet injection, this patient goes for that somatoform disorder. Okay, I was just kidding on the somatoform disorder. You've got to give me some leeway. We're... So here's my controversial statement. You can yell at me later, and then I'll back off. Chronic back pain often occurs from a failure to adequately diagnose and treat the problem. And I have to say that because there is no other explanation that I account for how come a patient can have a problem for years? They can be referred to me. I take a step backwards. We reevaluate the whole clinical scenario, come up with a new working clinical diagnosis, and then treat the patient. And then all of a sudden, if we find out that treating, getting the patient off the medications that they've been on for three years was a harder test than treating their back pain to resolution. So the one tip I can give you with respect to that is just because a patient has chronic low back pain, doesn't mean that they're doomed for the rest of their life. It means one of the best things you can do if you're seeing that patient for the first time is take a step backwards and like start from scratch because somebody else might have overlooked the pathology. So along these lines, you know we're all highly skilled clinicians in what we do. Every single one of you. There's no one of us that's better than anybody else. Um, although I, I, there's one guy that gets under my skin though. Um, but we're all highly skilled, well-rounded physicians, but we all do different things, we look at patients from different perspectives. So there might be trapezoid doctors and triangle doctors and round doctors and square doctors. Well, there's going to be a trapezoid patient, a round patient, a triangle patient. What happens if you put a round patient with a trapezoid doctor? What's our outcome? Probably not well. So you, as the triage person, even if it's something that you don't do, have to be able to identify, again, which patient goes to which clinician. And then sometimes these problems are complicated, aren't they? Who says you can't have a problem that's half trapezoid and half round? So then what happens? you either got to find a physician or clinician who's half round, half trapezoid, or, better yet, a round and trapezoid physician who, physicians, clinicians who work together. Because another thing that we do to help get our patients better is a lot of times we throw the rule book out. So when you throw the rule book out, you're thinking outside the box. Who says if you have a facet inflammation that might be leaking out inflammatory cytokines, which is now going to cause the radiculitis. So if you do a facet block, well, the root's still aggravated or irritated, so you get a false negative for the clinical benefit. Then you go back and do a transfram epidural, but by that time, the facet's still inflamed, so that doesn't seem to work. Well, I'll trade a, a diagnostic block confirmation for a clinical outcome all day long. So why wouldn't it make sense to block the, in, the facet joint and the nerve root at the same time? if that's what your clinical examination says. So don't be afraid to think outside the box. And that's the other secret we have. Most important tools we've already touched upon is the history, the clinical examination, and the experience of the clinician, you guys. Because if you see something, and you evaluate before you recognize it, how easy is it to catch it the next time? So the next time I ever see one of those strange myelopathic conditions that I would never be able to diagnose, you can bet I'm gonna be on the phone with Dr. Argoff saying, I have a patient for you. Because I'm gonna let him do that because he apparently has seen those patients so he can recognize them. As I pointed out in the imaging studies session, the problem that we have is who values our time as clinicians? Anybody? Do we get paid for it? Can you th- ever think in your right mind that it 10, 15 minutes is enough time to really get a good thorough history, examine the patient, render medical decision-making. It's virtually impossible, isn't it? But yet, what are we forced to do? But here's an interesting thought, right? And I think I mentioned this before, too. Some of these back surgeries are quite expensive, and they might be hundreds of thousands of dollars. The most expensive one I saw so far was they billed the insurance company four and a quarter. Okay, And the insurance company um, argued and bargained back and forth, and they got it down to 275. Okay, so two or three hundred thousand dollars for a potential back surgery. So if we say let's just take that and divide it up by an extra hundred or two hundred dollars, how many extended consults can we pay for for how many other patients? Save the the necessity. I'm stuttering. Save the necessity to save one MRI. How many additional consults could you get out of that? Save an injection. Save an unnecessary medical treatment. All of a sudden, the thing goes the other direction. But you know what? There's no doesn't seem to be any interest in doing that, does it? So, those of you who are in the imaging session, remember, I went over this patient. I'll go over it really quick. This was a 26-year-old female who was complaining of severe back pain radiating all the way down the, the the right leg, all the way to the foot, with numbness and tingling in the toes. Well, what does the MRI show? Everybody, normal, right? It's a pretty normal study from the standpoint of no evidence of disc bulge or herniation, pretty much normal bone disc, bone disc all the way down. Well, so what do you see when you see that patient who's coming and asking for their pain medications? Drug seeking, that's the common thing we hear, right? Worker's comp insurance carrier because the worker's comp claim thinks the patient's malingering. So I get the patient as a second opinion to, to verify or confirm that they're malingering and faking the patient had really acute, radicular symptoms during the course of the clinical exam. So does that, that doesn't make sense, though, does it? Well, clinical exam being most important, and you can localize it down to a radicular pathology, radiculitis, inflammation of a nerve root, doesn't show up on an MRI. So I confirmed it electrodiagnostically, so I did cheat, but my clinical examination really honed me in on it and my, my electrodiagnostic study at that point was just confirmatory, so I can kick the workers' comp insurance carrier in the teeth, but I also used it to help decide what to do with respect to treatment, but I probably would have made the same decision anyway. And the patient had a transramal epidural and then made her pain go away. So we didn't need the opioid, then it was a moot point. And then I also put up this one, the case scenario here was the 65-year-old farmer who never had any problem, avoided physicians, hospitals, doctors like the plague, fell off of his tractor, and ended up with an acute onset of low back pain radiating to the back of his leg, the same clinical scenario as our 26-year-old woman. So what do you say about this MRI? Little problem here at L5S1, right? Spondylosis, you got a disc herniation coming out the back, can everybody see that? Even you guys on this side of the room, with the the podium in the way of my pointer? L5S1, spondylosis, disc herniation coming out the back. the ER doc does his complete examination, which included dorsiflexion of the foot for his motor examination and some quasi-attempted straight leg raising, which was positive. He just tried to lift the leg off the table, and it hurt, so that was positive straight leg raising. So the, um, he, there was a surgeon in the ER that got called in because there was a multiple trauma also going on. So the ER doc said to the surgeon, I got another one for you. Here's the back. The surgeon assumed that the ER doc did a thorough examination and a proper clinical workup. So he goes over to the patient with the study looking up in hand and says, we're gonna have to decompress and fuse this. The poor old guy got scared, signed out of the ER, AMA, and went home. So the the surgeon called us up and asked us if we can see the patient to do something about his pain short-term while he convinces him that he's gonna need a decompression fusion. So that comes in the next day, and we evaluate him, and it took a few minutes to figure out he had a hip fracture. So yes, he was having surgery on Thursday, but to have his hip repaired. So you had a normal MRI with an acute, you know, real severe injury, very acute presentation, if you will, and then you had an acute onset of low back pain radiating to the lower extremity, same clinical scenario, with a focal pathology that had no clinical relevance to the patient's clinical presentation. So what does that tell you? This was, I also put this one up, this is that same 26-year-old female. This one over here was one of the worst MRIs I'd ever seen in my entire clinical career. 65-year-old guy builds houses for Habitat for Humanity. It had every single pathology known to man on that MRI. Uh, spondylosis, canal stenosis, foraminal stenosis, facet hypertrophy, um, you name it, it was all there. So the surgeon didn't know where to start. Well, the presenting diagnosis, if you guys that were in the, the imaging session Remember, it was just a focal area of pain right here around the buttock area that was especially problematic when he walked or when he stood up. It would feel like a knife jabbing him all the time. So clinical examination showed a gluteus medius trigger point and was negative for everything else. And I did one of the most thorough electrodiagnostic studies ever did on a patient. So I looked at every single nerve root from T11 to S1, and it was normal bilaterally. So I've kind of ruled out any myelopathy, radiculopathy, plexopathy, even an encephalopathy, all at one time, and a peripheral neuropathy too, as a matter of fact. Well, the guy had a gluteus medius trigger point. We injected the sucker, he gets up off the table and says, wow, it's better. Sure, but better. I think we did a repeat injection like two weeks later and he never saw me again. He was building houses for Habitat for Humanity. So the worst MRI in my clinical career, well, I've actually seen one worse now, but one of the worst MRIs in my clinical career It essentially had nothing to do with the patient's clinical presentation. It was all about the examination. So much for a whole bunch of injections and physical therapy leading up to that little course of the trigger point injection. So this patient, remember, had radiculitis, inflammation of a nerve root, likely a significant pathology. Anytime you see a pathology on an MRI that you treated with an injection, it went away because you know as well as I do the pathology is still present if you took a picture. So it probably was something inflammatory but ridiculitis is something that you'll never see on an MRI interpretation will you have you 20,000 MRIs I've never seen the term yet now if I hit the right arrow would be great so while providing valuable information relative to the patient as a standalone study if you will you don't know whether or not a pathology even if it shows you is clinically relevant so it has to be used in context with the clinical examination and the patient's history. My favorite MRI study of all time, if you recall, was this one from 1994. In it, Jensen basically took 98, and I was rounded up to 100 individuals that had no back pain whatsoever. 52% of them had a disc bulge or herniation, 38% of them had disc bulges and herniations at multiple levels, remember that study? So this says 50% of the population with no pain has disc bulges. Great, so how do you know when they have one that it's symptomatic? But yet, every time you have a symptomatic patient, what do you assume? This one is the most recent one that came out, and I showed this one in the imaging study as well Two, This study was great because the N number was sick. This was a China study where they looked at the people or patients presenting to two emergency rooms in China during the month of January 2013 with an acute back pain presentation. So our end number for this study was 3,107. Out of those, if you look at the numbers, 58.3% had negative studies, and there were positive findings on 41% of the imaging studies, but they had the little statement that said, but we don't know if it even correlated with the patient's symptoms. So you had a greater chance in an acute back pain situation of having a normal MRI How's that one for you? But yet, what's the first thing everyone seems to rely upon when it comes to back pain these days? MRIs, right? We all agree on that? Can we get a consensus? All right. Um, So here's another patient. So this patient has low back pain that was really appeared a week and a half before this MRI was taken with ridiculous findings. So when you see that disc herniation, what's the first thing that you can think of to come to the back of your mind as to whether or not it has any clinical relevance? I've showed this once before, so somebody should have the answer, right? Well, basically, these little white lip-like things above and below the disc here are called modic changes. Those are those little lip-like things right about there. So that's a sign of degenerative disc disease that took a long time to set in. Make sense? So could that correlate with being injured a week and a half ago? No. Now it's possible that to have degenerative disc disease with a disc herniation that was maybe on the border of causing a problem, and then all of a sudden something happened to make it worse, so now you have a symptomatic patient. That is theoretically possible. But at least you have to run the, th- the, the, the scenario in the back of your mind that it may or may not have anything to do with the patient's presenting clinical presentation but you won't necessarily see any reference on the MRI to the fact that there are emotic changes and some disc desiccation actually involving at the levels above and below as well that have really taken time to set in, again, not on the timeline. So you have to take a step backwards and say, maybe, maybe not. What do we do? This one was the do not pass go, do not collect $200 one, because if you notice here, we have a disc herniation compressing the nerve root as it's entering the foramen. So that would be frank nerve root compression. I saw a case study presentation the other day here, and what did they suggest after beating around the bush for a little bit a little bit, for a frank nerve compression? What's the solution? Decompression? Would physical therapy help that? No. What's an epidural going to do? Maybe even anesthetic effect for a short period of time, but it's not going to treat the problem. What's an oral steroid going to do? and said, bullet opioid fix the problem? (laughs) Not really. So this is, you know, and then you get surgeons who will sometimes say, well, we don't do surgery until the patient failed conservative therapy. Well, what conservative therapy do you want to do when you have an active nerve recompression? Beats me, because the longer you wait, or the more you do, the greater the potential for increasing the severity of the injury and decreasing the potential for a favorable outcome. Just food for thought. How about this guy? Now, this is a great clinical study, and this is why I put this up here. So this is, the, the, this is a patient, and here's the scenario. He's a fireman. He's carrying a stretcher down a flight of steps, okay? So he gets, feels a pull kind of in his groin inguinal region, and then shortly thereafter starts getting numbness and tingling in the anterior lateral part of his thigh, okay? So they send them to the doc in the box, like they always do for this workers' comp. I think it was a county, so they use the, whatever these little clinic doc in the boxes are. And they do x-rays, and they say, well, you have multiple levels of degenerative disc disease. Well, you got early signs. You can see the little white lines on the x-ray. So yeah, okay, the guy's like 48 years old or whatever. That's, and look what he does for a living. Would you expect that? Yeah, great. I'm glad. So they said, well, we're going to have to do an MRI of your back. Well, you also have to understand that they were actually forcing him into the diagnosis of back pain because his presented complaint is pain numbness, tingling, anterior thigh, and groin pain. So on the history form, it says, well, do you ever have back pain? He's like, well, I'm a fireman. Yeah, I have back pain all the time. Oh, we have back pain. We can deal with that. Not his complaint. So they do an MRI. Now, the MRI shows, and what's really important here to point out is, it's probably hard in the back of the room, sorry, but you have genetically small pedicles. So here's a relatively big, stocky guy, but he's got short pedicles. Well, if you have short pedicles, that means you're blessed. You know, I don't know if you can see it here, but you have know, like really short pedicles. I can't even hold the, the pointer straight from that far. If you have really short pedicles, what's that gonna do to your canal diameter? Make it smaller? So he's got canal and foraminal stenosis because the guy was born with short pedicles. And you remember what Dr. Argoff said earlier, if it's something you have for a long time, the body can adapt? You think that would be symptomatic? But they call that stenosis. So the surgeon says, we're going to order therapy for your back. Great, they give him exercises. That wasn't working. So we're going to have to do an injection. Okay, so show of hands, if you were going to do a, in this case it was a transpharmal epidural, so he actually blurted out, if you were going to do a transpharmal epidural on this patient, with the information that I've given you cuz the rest of this stuff was inaccurate anyway what would be the level that you might inject what was that 3 4 i like that's a possibility anybody else 2 3 i'm leaning more towards 2 3 anybody else we'll take the 2 3 why is it 2 3 because you remember the dermatomal levels for the anterior thigh that would be 2 3 So I'd be thinking if I was going to do an injection and it was a transpharm epidural, I'd probably be looking towards L2-L3, completely because of dermatomes. But remember I said the clinical experience of the clinician is extremely important? I've seen that condition so many times before. As soon as the patient said what it was, they knew where to go. Because you see it, you recognize it. You ever heard of a or Parasthetica? Okay, so Moralgia paresthetica is an entrapment or an irritation of the lateral femoral nerve as it comes under the inguinal ligament. You know how I know you're never going to forget what that is? Because when I relate it to, remember Tom Jones, the singer? You know, it's not unusual. I can't sing, so don't ask me to do it. We had a guy who did a satellite symposium at one of the pain weekend meetings. I think it was Nashville. He spent more time singing than he did talking about the product he was there to pay for. <laughs> but he had a good voice, and he can hum a good tune, too, but that's about as far as it went. So, Moralgia Parasthetica. Tom Jones used to get Moralgia Parasthetica because he used to wear these really tight pants. I can't do that. So, really tight pants, so when he would sit down, the crease of the pants would irritate the lateral cutaneous nerve and give him Moralgia Parasthetica. So now, anytime you see that symptom on a patient, you're not gonna be able to get Tom Jones' face out of your head. So, what's a good therapy or treatment for Moralgia Parasthetica? Lo- what was that? Loose pants. <laughs> I gotta remember that, because I've never seen that in a textbook. Typically, they respond really well with a local injection, a little bit of, an, a, little bit of a, a steroid, a little bit of anesthetic, and then typically what we do now, too, thanks to, top, even though it's off-label, of course, but topical NSAIDs work really well, so you give them a little bit of like diclofenic cream or something, which tides it over and really helps that thing heal, and you educate the patient about what it is and what to expect, and a couple of weeks later, that thing is gone. Well, that never happened to this patient because they did an L5-S1 transframal epidural, which what do you think it did for his symptoms? Nothing, so what did the surgeon say? And you're gonna love this. So the surgeon said, you didn't get the response from physical therapy, well, you never had a back problem, and you didn't get the response to the transframal epidural, which would have been the wrong level even if it would have been a nerve root problem, so we're gonna have to do a minimally invasive surgery. Okay? in your mind, give me an example of a minimally invasive surgery. Microdiscectomy, nah, I'm cool with that. You know, you make a small, tiny incision, you drop a tube in, you working through small instruments or something. Yeah, to me, that's a minimally invasive surgery. You ready for this one? Everyone take a deep breath so we can get the good gasp. There is the minimally invasive surgery. See the hardware? Can everybody see that? So the little pole that looks like a metal rod That's called an axial lift. Basically what they do is they drill a hole through the base of sacrum and into L5, and they stick a titanium rod through it. Minimally invasive. And then they have a version that goes up two levels, so you can put that into L4. So what this person had was they drill a hole in the sacrum and shove this rod up through L5 and L4. But remember the interpretation of the MRI said the guy had foraminal canal stenosis at L3, L4, L4, L5, l 5s S1. Well, that's an extra level. So the surgeon said, well, that can only go up two levels and we have to decompress the other level as well. So we're going to do a posterior lumbar interbody fusion above that. So this patient actually has a pliff right up here as well. That way he can get that extra level. And then to make sure it doesn't move, because you know, we don't want minimally invasive surgeries to be unstable in any way, we're going to put interspinous spacers and facet screws. Talk about setting off the thing in the airport. Yeah. Yeah. And, you ha- and if you look at the report, you'd cringe. So let's take this further. So the guy, when he would come in and you would ask him what his pain was like on a scale from 1 to 10, and you were going to absolutely love this story, he would say his pain is a, a 7 to 8. All right? Fireman, big, tough guy. So now he comes in, and he's looking really in really severe straits. He can't sit, can't stand. He is miserable. So I asked him on a scale from 1 to 10 what his pain is, and he said, it's kind of like a million. And he said, truthfully, Doc, I am so sorry. I ever used to say my pain was an 8 before, because now I'd probably say it was a 2 or a 3. It's all about perception. So it turns out that... The the doc didn't know what's going on, so he sends the patient for the post-op x-rays and post-op CT, which is what you're seeing on the board, because this patient has more pain than he's ever had in his life now. So the interpretation from the radiologist comes back and says, well, first of all, the methyl methacrylate used for the fusion at L3, L4 squirt out and is now hanging out in front of the vertebral body. You have the the vertebral end plate here at L4, oh, this is L, let's see, 5, 4. The vertebral end plate at L4 has collapsed around where the rod is sticking up into the L4 body. So you have an end plate fracture right here with bone marrow leaking into the disk space. Oh, and by the way, you have radiotranslucent rings around the the axial lift at L4 and S1, suggesting the fusion has not taken yet. That's the CT x-ray interpretation from the radiologist. You know what the surgeon's note says for that day? Everything looks good, not sure why the patient's having so much pain. I am proud to say that this did result in a malpractice case, and they got a million-dollar settlement after they deposed the physician. It never even went to trial. There is no way to refute against that one, because you even tried to sweep it under the rug. But it, it really gets under my skin, that all of this happened, and this patient, well, he's, he's actually doing okay right now, because now he's being managed for low-grade pain, He's being, and you can manage him with oral meds as long as you keep watch his activity, because the fracture finally healed, so he's relatively stable. But his life is forever ruined what could have been treated with a tube of diclofenic gel. See why things bother me? How about this guy? So this guy, what happened here is, there really was no significant pathology on MRI. So everything actually looked pretty good, except for some mild degenerative disc disease, which didn't look bad. So they did discography. Well, the patient had a two-level grossly positive discogram, because the physician said it was it put acute severe pain when I pressurized that disc. So we're gonna have to fuse them. That's great. How many of you use discography? Not too many. It seems to have fallen out of favor. It was used a lot more years ago. We see it used off, more often today. But for the few of you who do it, can we make any discogram positive if we pressurize that disc enough? Oh, yeah, nodding your head. So was this maybe necessary? I'm not so sure. So then what happens is he's still got a lot of pain post-op, so the doc says, well, maybe the other discs are bad too. So now what you have is a post-op fusion, which I didn't really like this hardware placement any either. So if you, I mean, if, if there's a surgeon in the room, I apologize. But all things considered, if you're going to put rods and screws on me, and I know there's soft tissue fascia over here, why not take the time to fit the rod a little bit better so it doesn't stick so high up over the screw? But I'm just saying, getting paid enough. See how, look at that, how far that rod's sticking up. I don't even like that one. But this is a post-discography x-ray, basically, on a post-op pain-still persistent patient. So now he wants to go and fuse the levels above. Well, this time the patient said, you know, I don't think so. Can we do something else? And that's kind of how I got him. So this one had a little bit more of a complicated problem because now we ended up with, inflammation of a nerve root, radiculitis, inside the level of fusion and at the level above, which I kind of think might have been happening because of the hardware, but I'm not so sure. But my clinical examination now is out the window, possibly, because what did you do to the anatomy? You messed with it. Can you palpate anymore? Not really. What's it going to do to orthopedic maneuvers that you do to most of the orthom- orthopedic maneuvers? It kind of fudges them a little bit. So now, you're becoming, now you have to look at clinical intuition and maybe electrodiagnostic studies. Well, what helped me diagnose this patient was a somatosensory evoked potential, and more precisely, a segmental somatosensory evoked potential, which is what allows you to look at nerve root by nerve root to quantify not only the presence of the pathology, the degree of severity, and also quantify the pathology, like is it compressed, is it inflamed, is it scar tissue? good luck trying to find someone in the country to do an evoked potential these days because reimbursement has gotten so small nobody wants to do them anymore. What other option would you have? So it turns out this patient had a two-level radiculitis, one dead center in the fusion and one the level above. So we calmed down his severe pain with the transfram actually, well, you can see the well, we call them transframinals now. They used to call them selective nerve blocks. I think they changed the name just so that it can match the billing code because nobody used to get reimbursed too well for selected nerve blocks. So that's quite a new phrase. So this patient did okay as far as the acute pain scenario, so at least we can make it manageable, but are they always going to have some degree of musculoskeletal back pain now thanks to the presence of the hardware? Yeah, but at least that can be managed on an as-needed basis and largely with adjuvant analgesics. They tried to keep them off of opioids and he was doing pretty well. How about this one make sure I got the right one there oh yeah I do okay what do you see on this study can we all agree there's a little disc over here everybody agree so when you look at the sagittal slices right here on the left for you guys on the far side of the room and isn't it ridiculous how wide the room is from this side to that side And I apologize for you guys that are over here, but we do have more seats over here if you want to kind of slide over. We, us on this side of the room, promise not to bite. And we're not contagious. So what you see here on the axial slice, look at where that disc herniation goes. See that? So what did we say when we saw something like that on that first slide? That was the do not pass go, do not collect $200 one because you can actually see nerve root compression. Everyone cool with that one? All right, so here's what happened. So the patient gets a laminectomy, and you can actually see where the lamina is cut away over here. All right? You see that? Like, so the bone's gone, and now you have the spinal canal, the, the, the caudioquina, basically in the dural sheath here, dural sac, coming out and being pushed out towards the level of where the lamina used to be. Can you guys see that? over here. Well, that creates a problem in on its own now too because guess what? Now the patient's getting an irritation at the at the caudate level causing a caudate equina syndrome because it's being mechanically irritated by the sort of the little space they left when they did the laminectomy because the thecal sac is being pushed out into it now being mechanically irritated by the bone. And not that I'm Arguing against laminectomies because in some cases I can see where they would be necessary But what do you do when you do a laminectomy? What's the other thing that disappears? Multifidus muscles, right? Multifidus muscles are extremely important when it comes to intersegmental movement, correct? So if multifidus muscles are responsible for helping keep that chain reaction, like every vertebra moves a little bit and moves all joined together, so if we cut what's joining them together, what happens to the parts as you start to move? They're kind of moving on a random basis, aren't they? So that becomes unstable. And what's an unstable back more likely to do? We don't even have to answer that question, do we? So here's another laminectomy. This one, L4, L5. See that? Where's all the bone in the back? So we'll call that a radical laminectomy because it involved more levels, and they took away all the bone. You know, the patient's original pain never changed. He had a lot of soreness around the surgical site, and he had some, a lot of other pain that he had, but the patient's original presenting complaint had never varied. You know why? Because he had sacroiliitis, <laughs> And when you have a sacroiliac irritation, think about the anatomy here. We're going to talk about the anatomy as we go. The piriformis muscle attaches to this you know, lateral border here of the sacrum and goes across to the top of the trochanter. So when the ilium or the, the sacroiliac gets irritated, muscles can go into spasm to try and stabilize movement to stop it from getting worse because the body says, look, it hurts, don't move. There might not be too much movement in the sacrum, but there's enough. So one of those muscles might be the quadratus lumborum that pulls the ilium up and says, don't move. Well, if you pull the ilium up, that puts increased tension on the piriformis muscle, does it not? So that causes what's called the functional piriformis syndrome, and the static nerve comes out in at least 90, well, 88% of the patients have the piriformis muscle over the top of the static nerve that just exits right below it. Well, if the muscle's in spasm, the nerve's coming out below, that can cause an entrapment, also known as the piriformis syndrome. Gee, what's a piriformis syndrome gonna do from the standpoint of radiating leg pain following the static distribution? So the guy had a problem that wasn't even in his back and ended up with a radical aminectomy because no one ever took the time to determine whether or not those little disc bulges and herniations on an overread MRI actually had anything to do with his clinical presentation. Because could we have found that sacroiliac problem, sacroiliitis on a clinical examination in 20 seconds? Yeah. So what we ended up doing, and we do things a little bit differently now, but. I had an old image here, so it's still here. So what we basically did in a case like that is we inject the SI joint. And okay, I'm going to piss off some interventional guys again, so I apologize in advance. But the old-fashioned way of doing a sacroiliac injection was you would just put your finger on the PSIS, and you all can sit in this chair and do it yourself. Put your finger on the bump of that bone, and you go a little bit more medial, medially, and your finger falls into like a little ditch. right? So that ditch is the space over the top of the SI joint, right over here, where the ligament is. Now, if you had a needle in your hand, you can reach around your back, because you know the shape of the joint. It goes that this way. You can take that needle, stick it right in the joint on your own SI joint, blindfolded, and get the needle in the joint 98% of the time without missing. Do you need to be a rocket scientist for that one? But somehow, I don't know where, and that's how we all used to do piriformis uh, uh, sacroiliac injections. Somehow, interventional pain textbooks started coming out and saying that you should go for the inferior aspect of the joint on the bottom using fluoro, which happens to also be the smallest part of the joint to try and get the medication to go up into the larger point of the joint surface. Yeah, maybe. Well, I can't tell you how many ones I've looked at on fluoro where all they did was miss the joint because you can see the contrast just going out into the pelvic cavity, so I guess that's a fake SI injection. So you can use fluoro, I'm all for it, just inject the upper part of the joint where all the joint surface is because you're more likely to get more medication into where it needs to be without being able to miss. And there's another added benefit of that too because one of the little clinical pearls, I'll tell you, if you ever do it, as you're pulling the needle out, give it a little extra squirt because the ligament over the SI joint also gets inflamed and that way you hit that too. So you increase the likelihood of a favorable outcome. That's my tip of the day. And if, you wanna, and if you're worried about standard of care and that you didn't hit the bottom part of the SI joint, feel free to do a second needle as long as you got that first one because that's the one that's going to count. Because the other problem is, too, if, once you go to put contrast in the joint at the very bottom, how much more volume can that joint take? Yeah, I'll go for the top, and we don't need any contrast because you can't miss the joint. It's like in front of you. It's the biggest thing in the world. Because remember, we can do it blindfolded. And anybody who's up for the challenge, go home, take a syringe, try it, it'll work. (laughs) I put this one here because these are the things that piss me off more than anything. So this is a soldier who was injured, active duty, and he ended up with what was diagnosed as a disc osteophyte complex causing his pain. Well, truthfully, I think he had a little bit of disc osteophyte complex there going on the entire time. I don't think it was relative to an injury unless it got pushed over the edge. But that's another story but he does have a disc osteophyte complex, and you can see it here coming off the back. Okay, it's right more prominent right over here. So they were thinking it was causing a little bit of a canal or foraminal stenosis as well, aggravating the nerve root or compressing the nerve root as it came out of the foramen. All right, so the surgeon said, okay, we're going to do a microdiscectomy, minimally invasive surgery. We all agree that could be possible if you verify that's the pathology. Everyone agree we could do that? Yeah, I'll be okay with that. So here's the Here's the, the top, you have to understand is the, uh, well, let's see, which one is it? It's the left side is the pre-op, the right side's the post-op. That's what it was, okay? So how do we know we have pre-op and post-op? Anybody want to take a guess? So this is the pre-op, this is the post-op. But here's the disc osteophyte complex. So here's the disc osteophyte complex post-op. What can you say about the two? They look pretty much about the same, don't they? So what would you operate on? And how do you know this was the post? Because you can see the hole in the lamina where they made the little you know, laminotomy to go through and to supposedly do the, remove the disc osteophyte complex. So was the procedure actually ever done? No. The soldier still has acute, severe back pain radiating into the leg, walking around on crutches. Well, it's the pathology still there. But read the physician note. The physician note says, despite the fact that the patient has undergone a successful lumbar microdiscectomy with marked improvement in his neurologic complaints and findings, which there's no exam findings, and the patient's still in pain, and essentially normal uh, post-operative MRI scan of the lumbar spine, he tells me he's unable to work anymore because of his low back pain. Apparently he failed um, all aggressive non-operative treatments for back pain, as well as in this case the operative treatment, so the, the patient must, it must be his fault. Whose fault is that? You should have seen the letter. This is one of the patients that I saw when I was doing this, this, um, this um, preceptorship thing at Evans Army Community Hospital at Fort Carson. So I wrote a letter to the, the chief medical officer of the base and said, this surgeon should never be allowed to touch any of our soldiers. I mean, it's one thing to have a not a, a, a successful outcome, but I don't think he made an attempt to do the surgery and then he made an attempt to sweep it out of the rug. Man, if Hammeropis co was in effect, what would we do? I'm all for that. Let's let's operate on him. So, as Dr. Argoff was so good to point out this morning, many of these patients have problems that aren't that can cause back pain or lower extremity type symptoms as well that don't necessarily have a problem in the back. The ones that really get me worried and have the hair on the back of my neck standing up are the ones that most of us don't know how to recognize but we do have the ability of knowing that something's not right and what do we do if we see a patient when we think there's something not right refer it out no one says we have to be able to do anything you know there's been a number of times where i've had i've been convinced that something's going on vascular or something at a higher level neurological thing that's way above my pay grade i'll refer the patient out even if they find nothing at least we're covering ourselves and we're protecting the patient. So don't feel too bad. We're gonna talk about the mechanical musculoskeletal problems largely is what we wanna go over today. So these are the different common things we see with respect to back pain. You know, the things that are like discs, nerve roots, facet joints, that stuff. Do these other things cause back pain too? Infectious metabolic neoplastic referred, yes. I just got very bad news today about a patient that I'm so upset about. Cause this is one that I originally saw two or three years ago for moralesia parasthetica and back pain, uh, so we kind of got the moralesia parasthetica and the back pain taken care of, for the most part, at least because all the clinical examination findings are now better. But then the patient's still complaining of some degree of back pain, but we have no clinical examination findings to back it up anymore. But he does have a history of psoriatic psoriatic arthritis and while he was on one of these newer uh, psoriasis-type medications that he was doing really well on it, the insurance carrier said, we're not paying for it anymore, so they forced him to start doing the only thing they were going to pay for, which was bi monthly steroid injections, which I didn't quite understand. So needless to say, I'm thinking, look, it's quite possible because there's nothing, or relative to me, there's nothing on your exam to suggest that you have a back problem anymore, so it has to be coming from someplace else. Common sense says maybe it's associated with your psoriatic arthritis, but it's not a pathology in the back that I can treat. But have your PCP work on it, You know, get your meds sorted, uh, put it in a letter so they can try and get the insurance company, maybe to try and improve the meds. He was continuing to deteriorate further. Um, someone, some crazy blood test came up um, abnormal. So they ended up doing a CT scan and they found some ridiculously rare pancreatic cancer. So I guess he was having surgery this week at Hopkins to try and remove it, and I got a text earlier that said they couldn't clear it away from the vascular side of the equation, so they're basically telling the guy they closed them up and they gave him a 1% chance of survival for weeks, actually, so that's not going to go over too well. But the hair on the back of my neck was standing up because I knew in my heart of hearts whatever was going on was not in his back. So I felt really bad, I'm feeling really bad, actually, and I keep on hitting the wrong button. So if you see a red flag, like an immediate onset of deteriorating neurological symptoms, that's bad. <laughs> you know, when you see things like you know, fever and chills and other thing going, things going around, also, that could be a red flag. So pay attention to the things that don't look normal for the typical back-type pathologies. And then if something's abnormal, you know what? Always have someone check it out whether you do it yourself or refer the patient out, because it doesn't hurt just to be sure and have another set of eyes put on that. So while there's a whole bunch of things that we can look at from the standpoint of looking at red flags, today I wanted to really concentrate on just evaluating the backs first, because that's really where we're putting our attention. And I think the interventional pain guy left, so I probably pissed him off, huh? Okay, so our common causes of back pain will start at the top of the list. It's that classic disc-type pathology, right? Well, disc-type pathologies come in multiple flavors. You could have a disc herniation. Maybe there's just a referred pain in the disc because we've heard of that, co- that concept of discogenic back pain. But that disc can also have a tear. And if that disc is, tear, is torn, what do you think is going to be around that pathology? Inflammatory cytokines, like tumor necrosis factor alpha and things like that. So you can have an inflammatory response there. Well, let's say you have a disc herniation, and that's an injury to a, a disc in general. Isn't it possible that that tumor necrosis factor alpha and other inflammatory cytokines can leak out or leach out of that disc? Yeah. And then what's close to that disc? Uh, Nerve root. So if you have those inflammatory cytokines and other crazy mediators leaking out of the disc space and they're real close to the nerve, what can that do to the nerve? Inflame it to cause radiculitis. Does radiculitis show up on an MRI? No. But that would be the patient that would respond to an oral steroid or an injectable steroid right? So that disc can be a disc herniation, it can, have, it can be compressive, it can be non-compressive, it can be a tear, it can have an inflammatory pathology, multiple flavors of the disc. How about the facet joint? We've all heard facet pain, didn't we? Don't we? Haven't we? Well, there are different variations of that too, and remember the inflammatory cytokines that can leak out of a disc? What happens if a facet gets inflamed? It's a joint with a capsule. Can't we get leaking of those inflammatory cytokines out of that capsule as well? And what's the facet near? Oh, yeah, that little pesky nerve root again. We hate those things. They just keep on showing up in the worst possible time. So if the facet gets inflamed, what's the likelihood that the nerve root gets inflamed as well? It could be pretty high, isn't it? Yeah. So that facet inflammation, again, can cause a nerve root inflammation, highly important. And that's important to know because that, I hear this thing about referred facet pain all the time where it follows the distribution referred my foot. That's inflaming the nerve root, causing the pain to follow that distribution. Doesn't that make a lot plausible sense? Because I can show you the pathophysiology of that one. The other one's complete speculation that was never proven. Ligaments. Okay, well, you know, there are ligaments that are in the back that could be problematic. Way back in the day, before we had those three-point shoulder harnesses things, if patients were in a car accident just with the lap belt, they would tear posterior longitudinal ligaments thanks to those You know, torso whiplash injuries, right? Um, In the same vein, early on when I got started in the 90s, we used to see a lot of torn and inflamed iliolumbar ligaments, which go from the lateral process of L5 to the iliac crest. You know, there are ligaments over the SI joint. We have tuberous ligaments. So there are a whole bunch of ligaments there that can be injured, torn, or aggravated. How about um, muscles? Well, muscle problems come in multiple flavors as well. What happens if a muscle contracted for a long period of time? You get what? Trigger points, buildup of lactic acid, we can talk about it in a whole bunch of different ways, correct? But the muscle has to attach to bone, right? Because the way that a muscle works is you have a tendon or a testosterone site above and below a joint, the muscle contracts it brings the joint closer and there's usually a tendon involved too or an enthesis is the technical term. So if a muscle is in spasm for a long period of time and it's pulling, what will that do to the insertion site? potentially irritate it, inflame it. It's called an enthesopathy, enthesitis, right? Make sense? So you can have a tenderness or an inflammation at an origin insertion site of a muscle. You can have pain in the belly of the muscle itself. The muscle itself can be injured. Who says you can't have a myopathy? Maybe we have some muscle injury. Well, it gets complicated because you can have primary and secondary muscle spasms. How many people in this room have ever turned their head to... For, you know, one quick, to a side for one quick second, and felt like a shock-like sensation in their neck, and felt everything lock up. That ever happened to you? So basically your body said, you know what, you're about to injure something, at least I'm perceiving you're going to injure something, so it put all these muscles in your neck into spasm in an instant to say, don't move, I don't want you to hurt that nerve. And then it realized everything's going to be okay, and it'll let you turn your head. So if the body senses something is wrong, what does it do to try and protect itself? Puts, Muscles into spasm, which could be muscles in your low back, right? So it could be a guarding mechanism. Think like our, our sacroiliac really patient that was actually complaining of back pain radiating off to the side. I'm going to show you what that is in a second. But that was due like largely to a muscle spasm. Well, if the nerve that goes to the muscle gets irritated or inflamed, technically that could send out just firing signals, facilitation of a nerve. What does the muscle think the nerve is telling it to do if the nerve gets excited? contract, so you get a muscle spasm or a trigger point if it's there for a long period of time. So the muscle might have direct nerve innervation saying contract, and then again, if it's contracted, you know, it, it gets inflamed in the belly of the muscle itself, lactic acid buildup, tenderness at the origin insertion, but there's essentially a sort of a primary and a secondary muscle spasm here. Primary meaning it's actually part of the actual pathology, secondary meaning it's in spasm because it's guarding for something else. So the key is to try and figure out what's what. Because one, you might want to have a greater tendency to treat than the other. Well, neurogenic, technically, if it's a nerve root, that would be neurogenic. We already kind of talked about the idea of radiculopathy, radiculitis, you know, nerve root compression, nerve root inflammation. And I think Dr. Joshi, does he pronounce it Joshi or Joshi? I've heard it both ways. Uh, was talking about cluneal nerve irritation in his back pain lecture yesterday. The, uh, the cluneal nerves gives you sensory innervation to the area around the pelvis. Well, if you irritate the cluneal nerves, which largely are sacral distribution, that can cause back pain, and that's also a neurogenic problem. A piriformis entrapment would can be considered a neurogenic pathology, not necessarily related to nerve roots. And what about joints? You remember a 65-year-old farmer that had a hip fracture? What about our other patient that had that radical laminectomy because they had a sacroiliac problem? Those darn sacroiliac problems, one day they're gonna figure out a surgical procedure to fix that. Oh, I think they did fusing the SI joint. Any of you guys have patients that have undergone those procedures, the fusion of the SI joint? I've never fused one in 30 years, but I've had to try and fix ones that were fused and became painful later when the fusion broke, and that's no fun. So I'm not an advocate of fusion, fusing. So basically, what's the likelihood if a patient has chronic low back pain that's been going on for a long time that even a single pain generator is involved? Now it's getting even more complicated, isn't it? Because now it's like, let's pile on the guy while he's down. Andrea Truscott was one of the interventional pain docs that gave me my start in the pain world back in the early 90s. And she used to say that all these back pain patients are like peeling off the layers of an onion. You know, you have one problem and another one sets in, so then you go to treat the one that you can see, and lo and behold, there's another one there that you have to address. And that sometimes happens. There have been times where I've known there's multiple things going on, but I can't see what that secondary pathology is, and I'll examine the patient two seconds after they've undergone a block because I've known that we've taken that part of the picture off the table just so I can see what's left. No one says you have to wait two weeks for the patient to come back post-injection to reevaluate them, and then we found a lot of things that way just by removing the symptomatic layer to peel it back. So... Now what I want to start doing is focusing on what it is we need to do to get a better idea of what's going on with our patients. And the most important tool that we have that we start with no matter what is always the history, it's what the patient tells you. The patient tells you a story. This is how it happened, this is what hurts, this is what makes it better, this is what makes it worse. This is when it bothers me. You name it, that information is essential. When I'm in a funny mood, which is, my wife says I have a strange sense of humor. But if I'm in one of those, like, cynical moods, usually, and I get one of these patients that's too ridiculously simple, and I start listening to the patient, haven't even laid a finger on him yet, sometimes I'll do one of the Johnny Carson Karnak things where you, you know, where the, the answers would sit on a mayonnaise jar in Funk and Wagnall's So I'll write on a post-it note what I think the patient has and stick it on the wall and say, okay, here's what I think you got, and I'll just do the exam and see if I was close. But again, that comes out of the whole idea of Sometimes you see these ridiculously simple problems, and when you see them over and over again, you're just going to think, wow, you know what it is as soon as the patient walks in your door, which is great because then you can treat it successfully. And then you have these other patients. You ever notice you're trying to get a history out of them, and they start talking about all the stuff that you don't want to hear about? (laughs) I have an unrelated one. Somehow, I don't know how I let myself get into this mess again, but I offered to chair this this car show, Concourse Judging Car Show, which is actually next weekend, Um, and the guy who's supposed to be in charge of the judging, when I send him an email or give him a phone call to ask him about the status of what we're doing for this particular thing for the judging, he starts rambling off on all these things about all these other projects he's working around his house that have nothing to do with my question, which is really making me nervous about how whether or not he's going to be able to pull this thing off, because my reputation is on the line. So the bottom line is, though, unfortunately, sometimes we have to get this information out of the patient, and that is one one little thing short of torture. I'd like to bring back waterboarding so we can force (laughs) patients to give us the right information. It's it's amazing. So don't be afraid when the patient starts kind of rambling off on a tangent to bring the patient back to center. You can do it in a very respectful manner. And you have to, because remember, time is the problem. So by the time they just started telling you about their children's baseball game, or how they forgot their glasses in the morning, which is why they went down the steps the wrong way as they were trying to run back to get it. I don't really care. But I don't want to seem uncaring. So there's really a skill in history-taking. And one of the first pain, well, it was actually the predecessor to Pain Week, the the Pain Educators Forum. We actually did a whole hour session on nothing but history-taking. It was pretty, it was pretty intense. So, you know, some things are important, like, you know, Dr. Argoff was venturing, was mentioning some of the red flags that make the hairs in the back of your neck stand up, sort of, you know, pain at night that's worse. Well, that's one of those red flags for infection or cancer. It could also be something else, but at least it calls your attention too. I should be looking for some of the things on the sideline. If the patient says they're stiff in the morning when they first get up, and it takes them like 20 minutes to get moving before they can go up and get their coffee, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? there's some kind of an inflammatory process going on somewhere, right? Because you know, like, think the, the patients with rheumatoid arthritis who can't move their fingers, but if you can get them out gardening for a few minutes, 10 minutes later, they're, they can play a piano and they wouldn't be thinking twice. So that to me is something that suggests, well, no matter what's going on, we know we have an inflammatory pathology, so what are you already thinking in the back of your mind with respect to treatment options? There's maybe gonna be a steroid or an NSAID in your future We look at what makes it better, what makes it worse. Well, the typical thing of increasing Valsalva's move, we're like, oh, doc, whenever I cough or sneeze, that thing's unbearable. Well, that's usually a sign of a symptomatic nerve recompression or a disc herniation or a myelopathy because you're increasing intrathecal pressure. All right? If the patient says, you know, the slightest little movement, it hurts, well, you know, the first thing that moves is your hip, then the SI joint, then the back where it starts to teeter in. But if I'm bending all the way forward and I'm feeling pain, well, maybe I'm stretching an inflamed facet capsule or maybe I'm moving the SI joint and that's causing pain. But on the other hand, if I'm stuck forward because I'm walking around like this because that's the best position I can sit in, you're thinking, hmm, maybe I got spinal stenosis or maybe I have a disc herniation that's symptomatic. Because what happens when you bend forward to that disc usually? It gets sucked back in and you stretch the other tissues around to give you more space in the canal so what the patient is telling you is giving you a lot of information about what might be causing the problem okay how about when i go back and it catches what would that be oh yeah well there's a trick question there what happens when you lean back when you lean back technically you're causing that they, the canal, you know, all those tissues to kind of come together and you're also putting the nerve roots together so you're actually causing you know, a, like a foraminal compression so that would be more likely problematic in a patient with nerve root compression. However, there is an orthopedic test that like Kemp's and some others that you're sort of loading the facet joint back and that can cause pain too, but facets tend to be more ag- aggravated when you stretch them rather than compress them. They like to be compressed when they're inflamed. So that's a great one, but it still gives you some idea what to look at. So <clears throat> there is no way to do an examination on every patient, if you will, or no single way to do a physical examination. You basically have to develop the skills yourself, and you do it in a way that works, that's comfortable for you. The only thing I suggest is you have to make sure that you structure the examination so that you at least stack the cards in your favor for being able to find the common things that you should be seeing for back pain. And then if you have a core exam and you do that core exam every time, obviously, depending on what you find, you might go off on a slight tangent, but you're going to be more likely to catch the lion's share of most of those problems because you're doing the same thing repetitively. And the more you do it, guess what happens? The easier it is to do and the more efficient you become with it, so it takes less and less time. So a couple of years ago, I, we, we, I taught a very similar lecture to this at Pain Week, and I've seen a colleague I hadn't seen in years, so we kind of reconnected. And a few weeks, months later, I happened to be in his hometown, so I called him up. I was going to go out to lunch with him. So I get to the office. His last patient was there. So he said, hey, you want to come in for this exam? He was all proud to show me that he can do a thorough back exam. So I said, sure, I'm cool. So he does the exam, and you know, the, the patients and he are like sitting, standing, lying, standing, twisting, lying, bending, the whole thing. Cool it. it looked like a, basically, he said, so how would I do? And he said, well, as far as thoroughness, you're on point. As far as choreographing a Broadway show, beautiful, you will have a whole new career." He says, what do you mean? I said, dude, if you did everything that involved sitting while the patient was sitting, and everything that involved the patient lying prone while they're prone, and everything while they're lying supine, supine, you and the patient would not have had to move around so much. Because by moving around so much, first of all, you're taking a patient who's already uncomfortable, and all that moving, bending, twisting, and changing positions is not helping matters. It's because you have to wait in between every time the patient has to change positions too. But it, you're not being efficient with your time because you're having to do all that moving around too. So I said, I'll tell you what, that's your exam, not my exam, but it is thorough. So let me do one for you. So he says, okay, why is something, which I won't say, let's see you do better. So I did his next patient with him in the room, patient was agreeable to, it was kind of cool. So his exam, well, I did his exam in half the amount of time that he did to get the same test result, you know, the same results. So then I had to ask, why did you choose to do the exam the way that you do it? Answer is, that's the way all of the stuff appeared on the exam form, which was pre-printed. Make up your own forms if you're using written. If you're, even if you're using digital, we laugh because most of the electronic medical record systems do not have adequate space or adequate information to basically tell you what's going on with the patient's back. You have to really build the record yourself because it doesn't exist. I got one emailed yesterday. I forgot what session I was in. Um, and I, I got it from a nurse case manager who sent me this record. So it's 40 pages of notes Um, relative to, I think, eight office visits. So that's a lot of notes on any given visit. I'm looking through all of these consults. First of all, they all look the same. So you might as well have taken, except for one line in any single consult, you might as well just photocopied the records. I think even a typo went through on every single note. But there's not information in here. It's like, so what do you think the patient has? It's like, beats the heck out of me. I can't tell because there's not enough clinical information here to even make a reasonable decision. It says back pain, where, when? What's the qualities of it? What makes it better, what makes it worse? Where is it, is it radiating? If so, to where? Is it better in the morning, worse at night? I mean, there's nothing in here other than back pain. They've done six injections. (laughs) Okay, and now they wanna do a spinal cord stimulator. It's like, let's take a step backwards and see if we can figure out what's causing the pain first. We got some way to go here. So we'll see what we can do with that. So be efficient. My examinations always start with looking at the patient before the patient even says a word. So I had the luxury of going and getting the patients out of my waiting room um, because I would have always had a low volume practice per se, and the average person can't do that. But you can, and I also see a lot of workers' comp, and I want to know how the patient's behaving in the waiting room, which is a whole other scenario because don't you love the patients that are... Kind of moving around, happy, kidding, like they're—it's like a party time in the in the your waiting room. But as soon as they get to go into, as soon as you're calling for their appointment, all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, I can't move. Yeah. My favorite one of all times—the guy walks in the office like that, and he's carrying a cane too. You know, a younger guy. It was supposedly work-related back injury. So, and that was my very first office actually. So I had my office was on a sixth floor, and I had these floor-to-ceiling glass windows overlooking the parking lot in the top of this building, it was really cool. That was my favorite office ever. But you never could see those windows when you were in my office, because that was on my private office, and those doors were always closed. So they never saw what was outside, so he didn't know. So they come, he comes in, and he's moaning, groaning, not moving, stiff, the whole king of bull, and I kind of thought he was embellishing a lot, actually, because I really couldn't find much on his exam. There was a couple little things, but nothing that should have been debilitating in any way. So I'm, I'm talking to the insurance carrier, the nurse on the phone, while I'm looking out my window, and he's walking out the building, he tosses the cane up in the air like he's in a Broadway show, (laughs) catches the cane, runs through the parking lot, jumps into his Jeep that had the door closed but the top down, over the door and into the driver's seat. (laughs) Gotta love patience, don't you? So your exam starts when you look at the patient because the patient behavior gives you a lot of information about what you might be looking for and you didn't even lay a hand on him yet so these are three actual patients this isn't staged you want should we go through them of course we should so here's our first patient okay and the image popped up too soon i'm sorry it was supposed to come up like second but see what he's doing he's sitting forward what happens when you sit forward you're taking pressure off this little disc herniation, so when you lean forward, it sucks it back in, so it's asymptomatic then, because it's not pressing inside the canal. Make sense? His favorite antalgic position, he can talk to you all day long, and he's happy as a camper as long as he's st- sitting like that. As soon as he stands up, he's not happy. And, then, and the longer he stands, he starts experiencing pain radiating down the back of the leg. Okay, so we're already thinking, you know, it might have to do with this pathology, but it could be inflammatory, too. We don't know that it's fully compressive yet because it's not causing radicular pain while he's sitting down. It's only radicular pain when he stands for too long. So there may be a non-surgical option for that. We're not sure yet, but at least you have something to try. So a patient that's leaning forward to take the pressure off or make themselves feel better is either trying to stretch all this tissue in the back like they would if they had spinal stenosis, I, Right? or a disc pathology, something like that. Okay, remember I like to play that whose line is it anywhere kind of thing? Thousand points for anybody who can tell me how to, what a good sign to differentiate between spinal stenosis versus a disc herniation such as this might be on that same patient. Did I say million, how many points did I say? Thousand, 5,000 5, will increase the offer. <laughs> points don't matter, so it doesn't matter, right? Well, have you ever heard of intermittent claudication? Yeah, so a patient that has spinal stenosis, like the older guy with everything getting small and tight, might take a few steps, walk a little bit, and then have to kind of lean forward and rest, and then they kind of can stand back up again, take a few more steps and go. It's intermittent claudication. So you might see that same clinical manifestation of the same patient sitting down for that antalgic position leaning forward, but he would be describing things that you would be, find consistent with intermittent claudication which would make you think more of a stenotic condition versus, like, a disc herniation. See how the pieces kind of fit together when you start putting the whole picture together? So that would be what you'd see with an antalgic position such as this. Nerve recompression or spinal stenosis. Or disc herniation is really what that should say. How about this guy? Now, this one's a tough one. And the reason why it's tough Because you can't necessarily see him in the chair, but if you look closely, he's sitting on the edge of the chair in the front, and if I point that out and tell you, now you can picture that. He's sitting on the edge of the chair leaning backwards. So what wouldn't the problem likely be if he was leaning back? Stenosis or nerve root compression. Yeah, right? So he's sitting in the chair, leaning backwards, and he's got his leg extended. So if you're leaning backwards and you're more comfortable leaning backwards, you might likely have a facet pathology. Because if you have a facet capsule that's inflamed, putting it back closer takes the load off of it makes it feel better. Going too far bumps it together and it gives you that catching pain that's out. See what the little difference is? Because remember, someone said if you go too far back and it can catching pain, that could be a facet? Yeah, that's because you slammed the, the, you know, the interior components of that facet joint. Because remember, it's got a meniscus just like your knee. And then you slammed it and it got painful but they're gonna to wanna to keep that facet from loading, so they're just leaning back. Okay, 5,000 points to anybody who wants to tell me what side you think the facet pathology is on. How, well, it can only be left or right, right? So how many people say left? How many people say right? How many people say it really doesn't matter? <laughs> you gotta feel those stiff. This patient has a right-sided facet problem, okay? Because if you look really close in the chair, you'd also notice he's sort of just favoring the right side a little bit. But more importantly, what's one of the nerve root stretch signs? Like Lasegue's test, you know, you stretch the nerve, it causes pain. So um, when he's sitting in the chair, he's outstretching his left leg, which that would probably pull on structures that might be inflamed. But what's he doing to the right leg? He's bending it back to take any pressure off. So the patient actually had an L5-S1 facet inflammation on the right that was causing the L5-S1 nerve root to become inflamed, giving him radicular-type symptoms. So his fix was an intra-articular facet injection with, in this case, it was a transforaminal epidural at L5-S1. So we clipped both things that were inflamed at the same time you lose the diagnostic specificity, and yes, that's an off-label outside the box, but what do you trade that for? A successful outcome. Make sense? So, leaning back, more likely a facet joint, leaning into the facet joint tells you what side, and taking the stress off the nerve, especially since he's complaining of ridiculous type pain, was the catch that there's probably a radiculitis there too. Cool shot, but we didn't even examine him yet. But this is the, how the information's starting to build just as we're going through the whole thing. What time do I have until? 3.40, right? I better hurry up. How about this guy? Girl, gal. I'll make it quick. What's she, what is she avoiding putting pressure on? Right side. What else is on that right side? Hint. SI joint, the person who has a sacroiliac or hip problem is going to be less likely to want to put pressure on that sacroiliac or hip, won't they? Okay, there's another thing here too called thoracolumbar junction syndrome because if you irritate the thoracolumbar junction for whatever reason, could be facet, could be nerve it could be something else, one of the things that can happen is you can get a spasm of the, there we go, of the quadratus lumborum muscle that's acting as a guarding mechanism and that'll tilt the ilium forward. So that kind of rotates your pelvis. That patient's not going to want to sit flat on the table either, so they'll do the same thing. So, you know, when this person came in and I'm having this conversation, what do you think I put on my Post-it note when I stuck it on the wall? Tickrelitis, because you can tell by the history. I'm getting pain. It's kind of in the back pain off to one side. I'm not getting any pain into the back of my leg or any other symptoms. It's sort of there all the time. It gets stiffness when I get up from a seated position. Sometimes, you know, annoying, more annoying at night when I'm trying to sleep, because position so, yeah so I got the history I can see you sitting there talking to me it's like yep yeah, post-it note sick and then you do the exam it's like yeah yeah there you go how about this guy this one was supposed to be a video so you'd have to see him walking what do you think he might have how about a psoas contracture he looks like he just rode a horse for God knows how long right he's kind of kind of taking a step like this because what happens, what does the psoas muscle do? Hip, uh, hip, well, you know, forward flexion, right? So these patients are fun to play with on an exam table. I'm not saying you should play with your patients on an exam table, but if you think about it, if they're stuck forward in a flexed position, because the psoas muscle comes down under the trochanter to lift up the leg, so if they're stuck like this and you've got to lie them down flat, what happens when you push down their torso? The leg comes up. What happens when you push down the leg? The torso comes up. You can play with them for hours. Now, the psoas muscle or psoas contracture is a very unique problem, and the reason being is because the nerve to the psoas actually pierces through the psoas. Well, that's interesting, because a psoas contracture then can irritate its own nerve that innervates itself, and guess what that'll cause? A psoas contracture. So if you send that patient for like a myofascial release type thing or stretching, what do you think that's going to do to the nerve? Ouch. Ouch. But if you send the patient for like just a regional block alone, that might work. Sometimes it's a block and some therapy, depends on the order, depends on the patient. You have to decide that for yourself. This patient, I wasn't sure what was going on, because we did a compartment block, and he was great. He was standing up, walking normally, going down the floor. By the time that block wore off, he was back to being contracted again. So I'm not sure whatever happened with this patient, truthfully, because he got whisked off by ice. And sent back to, I don't know where he went. I think it was Honduras. So I, I don't know what happened to him. But it was a classic example of a, of a, um, of a, a psoas contractor, and the only one I have to have a video for. How about this guy? So he's stuck like this, and he walks like this. And he's post surgical now, times two, because first he had an L5S1, L4, L5, L5S1 disectomy, and that didn't work. So they feared, okay, we're going to do an L5-S1 fusion, and that didn't work. Any takers? What am I, what's he protecting if he's walking like this? SI joints. Because you know, the, remember, the hip and the SI joint moves before the back does. So this guy had a bilateral sacroiliitis that ended up with two radical surgeries for him. So, here's the clinical scenario on this one. So, I asked the pain guy to do the SI injections on him, and they did the lower part of the joint, the one that someone didn't like before, but they missed. He wouldn't show us the fluoro, so we couldn't tell. So, we just assumed. But I was convinced after two shots at it that this guy had a sacroiliitis, because it was a classic sacroiliac problem when you go to do the exam. So, I, I referred him to somebody else, and this time I went into the procedure room because I wanted to see that injection go in the joint myself the guy gets up off the table and walks well he they wheeled him out of the table but he gets up off the you know the off the stretcher you know after the um, um you know post procedure and he's walking which is better than he's been doing before you know and then i warned him that the medication was going to wear off and he'd be stiff again but hopefully the steroid would kick in in a few days within a few days and he'd do a little bit better so over the course of the next couple of days I'm, he's texting me and emailing me he's walking to his mailbox and he walked down the block all the stuff he hasn't been doing in months But after about two weeks, it started wearing off again. So the surgeon says, well, your idea failed, so we're gonna continue down our course. So he went to do a baclofen pump instead, which I still never got. But then he had an adverse event from the pump and almost died until this day. I have no idea what happened because they took the patient from us. Well, we got a positive clinical outcome that was confirmatory, which is better than you ever got. At least let us go down that path, but no. Beats me. How about this one? I had to throw this in because I kind of like this, because sometimes you have to have one to stir it up a little bit. So what's this patient gonna do from the standpoint of antalgia? Those of you who sat through the imaging session already got this. They're stiff as a board. What happens if they try and bend forward? Is that gonna suck in? Uh Uh-uh, because it's herniated out and down. What happens if you go backwards? Well, that's not good. So this patient is stuck, like stiff as a board. Imagine a disc herniation in your spinal canal that's like filling up a large portion of the spinal canal. Now, this happened over a long period of time, so the body kept on adapting to the space getting smaller and smaller without causing ridiculous symptoms. But what's the patient's position stuck in? They can't move because the slightest little movement aggravates this structure, and it just becomes more restrictive, and they're frozen. So this is the patient who has axial pain, no ridiculous symptoms, And then the surgeon says, well, we don't operate on axial pain alone, but if it ever goes down to your leg, then we can take out the disc. That's nuts. You can't fit every patient to a scenario. You have to be soft and flexible. This patient ended up having the discectomy, ultimately, and then did pretty well. I think that was the one I had the problem. It was either this one or the other one. Similar scenario where we did a disc herniation. it was a, a... a uh, really major disc herniation into the canal, not pressing on any nerves. And this woman was in misery for three years. So we ultimately confirmed it, got the discectomy. And a period of time later, I'm shopping with my wife in Macy's or something, whatever it was. And this woman runs up out of nowhere to come up and give me a hug. And not a good thing in front of your wife. But she, and then she explained herself, she was just saying, thank you, she was so appreciative that somebody took the time to listen to her and believe her because they were treating her for somatoform disorder at first. How do you miss that? Anyway. So anyway, most important tools, and and Dr. Argoff mentioned this too, Dr. Joshi mentioned it yesterday too, always look at your patient. You have to look, touch, and feel. Man, I have the world's largest collection of patient back pictures. I mean, it's got to be over 20,000 pictures. And I'm not weird, I assure you. But I use pictures to help confirm or help support what I'm finding on my patient and as an education teaching tool to the patient to show when a problem is reversed. For example, um, what's your name? Patrick? Patrick, stand up for Sam. Patrick, everyone, everyone, Patrick. You got to turn sideways. All right, make a muscle. Show him your biceps. The other one, so everybody can see, a little better. Everybody can see his bicep, right? All right. So if I told Patrick, what do you do, Patrick? Anesthesia. Anesthesia. So he's one of those guys we like, right? The good ones, because the bad one left. All right. So if I said, contract your quadratus lumborum for me, can you do that? Show everybody. Contracted. Yeah. You trying to figure out how to do that? Right. Can you contract your longissimus muscle, please, for me? Not really figuring out how to do that either. So if you bend the patient over an exam table and you see a spasm of the longismus and the quadratus unborn, you can sit down now. Like that, you see the difference from left to right? See the big muscle spasm here, nothing over here? Can you see that? If you bend the patient over exam table and they have a spasm of a muscle that they cannot voluntarily control, what does that tell you with respect to the veracity of the patient complaints? There's something there. I don't know what it is yet, but there's something there. So if you get a negative MRI, and the patients say, hey, I'm in pain, give me my opioids, um, my opioid medication, at least you know that there's something there that needs to be treated, even though you don't know what it is yet. So if you want to save yourself, it's a cool thing to put a picture on the record because you just supported the presence of pathology. Here's a statement. Please don't use it out of context because I'll get in trouble. If I said to you that a visual analog scale is an objective indicator of the presence of pathology, you would say I was... I'm seeing heads turn. Nuts, crazy, I heard crazy in the back. Well, if you notice, I have a really cool visual analog scale, and I'm using it as a straight edge, and that proves that there's an objective finding. <laughs> See what I mean about using it out of context? You can get me in trouble. So my examination includes bending the patient over an exam table to look for the presence of voluntary invol- involuntary muscle spasms, and I document it in the record with pictures it goes further than that because not only will i document it in the record see all these different clinical scenarios here including post-op right not only do i put it in the record i use those records to prove my point when we treat a patient because remember i'm in the workers comp world and for every one patient that says thank you and appreciates what you do four or five will disappear into the woodwork and four or five will actually lie to you after you treat their problem to say i still hurt because of secondary gain issues. So you go from being like God to the devil overnight as soon as you treat the problem. It really is terrible when people curse you for doing the right thing to try and go out of the way to help them and it's very frustrating. So here's a patient that had was treated for a back problem for three and a half years by the time I got her. And the only reason I got her was because she moved from New Jersey to Virginia and they had to find another pain doctor to manage her case. So she came into the office and we were supposed to manage her meds and look for, and I'm looking at, well, why do we have to manage your meds? Why don't we just fix the problem? So I did an exam, and I found a thoracolumbar junction syndrome that was actually due to inflammation of the T11, T12 facet joint. So if you grabbed the model of the spine back in your office and gave it a twist, you would see that there's a force load that goes to the T11, T12 facet, and the reason being is lumbar facet joints are sagittal, thoracic facets are coronal, and T12 has thoracic facets on the top, lumbar facets on the bottom so it doesn't know where it wants to be when it grows up so if you twist the spine the axial load goes right through that t11 t12 facet joint and if you irritate the facet joint at that level and you get a little bit of facilitation of the nerve that comes out well the nerves that innervate the longissimus muscle are largely from t10 to l2 oh well the longissimus muscle inserts at the base of the back what's that going to give you back pain yeah maybe So, in this case, we did a lumbar medial branch block because I thought the facet was actually relatively mild and crossing a couple different levels, and then we applied a manipulation to reset that normal articular movement at T11, T12. Remember thinking outside the box? Because if you try to manipulate it, it's been stuck and inflamed there for so long. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? just going to make it angry, and the multivitous muscles are probably going to stop you from doing it anyway. But by combining the two procedures together, we get an outcome. Post-injection, pre-manipulation, you can see the band-aids, but you still see the muscle spasms that were present. But post-manipulation, where'd the muscle spasms go? They're gone. Well, I got my immediate gratification to say, what well, we did just work, see you in two weeks. Patient comes back in two weeks, how you doing? Well, I don't know, I don't think I'm feeling any better. Okay, well, you've had your problem for three years, you've been on medication for three years, neuroplasticity set in, all of your examination findings are still normal, Oh, and here's a picture of your back today, and look what's still missing. You still don't have any muscle spasms. Remember all these things that were positive on the exam? They're normal now? No muscle spasms? You just got to wait for your body to heal. It's going to take some time. And we gave them the whole explanation about, like, you know, exercise, you develop your cardiovascular system, and if you stop, it takes time to go back. Well, this has to adapt, too. But now we're going to start weaning you off your medications. It's like, no, 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 you can't. It's going to hurt. It's like, trust me. So we spent six weeks weaning her off all her meds, and we ended up with a patient on no meds, no pain. But it took time to sink in, so it took longer to treat the problem that set in because of central sensitization and neuroplasticity and the medications than it took to treat the back problem. How's that one for you? And the tattoos prove it's the same patient. (laughs) You can't Photoshop that one. I'm not that good. So pre- and post-pictures, just to show you the same thing, you know, similar ideas. So what I do is, what I recommend everybody do, is actually take a chart of the low back muscles and leave it on your wall. Because that way, when you palpate a patient, you can say what muscle it is, because you should put in the record what muscle it is. You can call that out and remind, and say the patient, here's the muscle that's in spasm. I mean, I used to do that. Now I kind of just pull up my tablet or my computer screen and show them the picture, because it works just easy too. But the cool part is, if you can't remember the names of the muscles, you got the chart in front of you, because the patient can't tell you're looking at the chart when they're bending over the table. But then after, there's only so many of them. So after you do that a couple of times, you'll know them. So when you see a patient like this, this is that long muscle spasm we are talking about. See where the fascia is and where the insertion is at the, around the lumbar sacral region. So if this muscle here is contracted, where are you going to feel it pulling? Where's your pain? Here's the quadratus lumborum that I talked about like on that patient with a sacroiliac problem. Well, the nerve innervation for the quadratus lumborum usually is around T12 to L2, so it's going to be somewhere in this region too. So it's a primary problem if that muscle is in spasm when the patient's lying prone and non-weight-bearing, because it's probably going to be because there's a higher level of radiculitis or radiculopathy, but if it goes away when the patient's non-weight-bearing, it's probably guarding for something else. But either way, where's this patient going to experience pain? Oh, the pain goes off to the side, because where the insertion is at the iliac crest, you're going to feel your tenderness. But you see how the, the anatomy and spasm Agrees with the anatomy picture. My reports, really, when I show presence of muscle spasms, actually have these anatomical pictures in them too. They're off the charts. So we palpate everything. I palpate not just bones. We palpate muscle. I mean, not just muscles. We palpate bones. How do you palpate bony structures when they're under layers of muscles? You gotta know your anatomy. We did a research study back when I was in school where we piled up like twenty-five sheets of tissue paper, and we wanted. Thinnest fiber you can palpate through 25 sheets of paper, a tissue paper was. So we put you know, different sized fibers in this grid and you'd have to try and find where they are. The average person with a little bit of practice can palpate a 25 micron fiber through 25 sheets of tissue paper. What does that do for you guys? You know, when you get, I know you'll feel like you're imagining things at first, but you'll feel the direction. For those of you who do myofascial work, you can feel that muscle you know, those motor fibers when they're in spasm, can't you? You can feel the direction of the fibers in the muscle when you dig in. Ah, a little practice goes a long way. So if you're palpating over a structure, even though it's covered by soft tissue, you know what you're palpating over, so you'll be able to imagine what you're palpating. And I only don't just palpate in a weight-bearing position. I palpate my patients in not weight-bearing as well, because we look for the changes between weight-bearing and non-weight-bearing to determine primary and secondary, plus a bunch of structures are a lot more readily palpable when the patient's not in weight-bearing. But the weight-bearing is more likely to give you the muscle spasms that are involuntary to help you support the veracity of the patient complaints, too. Make sense? I know, I'm getting verbose now, and I have to hurry up because I've got to get to the exam findings, which is the most important part of this whole lecture. So, muscles, basically. These are the muscular anatomy really quick. The erector spinae muscles go all the way from the base of the back to all the way to the top of the neck. Here's a trivia question for you. When, it, when does the back problem cause shoulder pain? We have so many of these patients that have been treated for multiple problems over the years where they have like a back and a shoulder problem, so they get referred to us for the back, and we make their shoulder pain go away. Well, the longissimus muscle that might have been iterated from T10 to L2, look where it inserts, between the shoulders. What's that going to feel like? Potentially shoulder pain, especially if it's pulling on the rib and it's irritating the costovertebral joint, because then the cascade of things that happen is the body says, "Well, wait a second, I'm going to try and keep the scapula off that." The subscapularis muscle gets irritated, the trapezius goes into spasm, and you get this whole cadre of things causing a myofascial shoulder pain, all from the back. And then you have to deal with a workers' comp carrier who says, "Well, you know, we're treating the patient for a knee problem. I don't see how that's causing shoulder pain." You know, the body's all connected, but I'm just saying. So this is the longismus muscle. The iliocostalis is kind of off to the side, and sometimes it's hard to differentiate between the longismus versus the iliocostalis, which goes to the lower part of the ribs, but all end up at the lumbar sacral region. The quadratus lumborum is off here to the side. And then as you peel those layers off, what's underneath the longismus are the erector spinae muscles, the multifidus muscles. So what's the direction of the fibers for those real long muscles? They're vertical, aren't they? So as you're feeling it, any spasm you feel or any when you dig into those fibers, they're going to be straight up and down. What's the direction of the fibers for the multifidus muscles? They're off like little triangles. So those fibers are going out like this. Plus, not only the fiber direction, but you can tell based on what the muscles are based on where the muscle spasm is. Like, that fiber is really long. Okay, that's long Oh, yeah, I can feel a little knot in there, but it's only short. It's crossing two, two or three lumbar segments. That's multifidus muscles. You can palpate those with your fingers. You just practice. If, and if you haven't done it before and you want to practice, don't practice on staff, practice on family members. I had one problem, unfortunately, where one doc was practicing on his nurse. It didn't go over too well. <laughs> so practice on your spouse, practice on your neighbor, don't practice with your staff, rule of thumb. So multifidus muscles going from segment to segment, and as you get to the lower lumbar spine, they actually might cross two, and they'd be a little bit longer. The spinalis muscle, which is another muscle for the erector spinae, is this pencil-thin muscle that kind of runs up from T12 all the way up to about C7, T1, and that sulcus between the lateral process and the spinous process on either side. Piriformis, we've kind of already talked about a couple of times, quadratus lumborum. So the quadratus lumborum patients, they're going to get pain that radiates off to the side. And a lot of times, if you walk your fingers around the iliac crest, as soon as you hit the insertion, you're going to feel that. I can't tell you how many times in my career we've injected the insertion site of the quadratus lumborum. And I'm not looking at that to treat the pathology. I'm looking at that to treat the secondary symptoms more to make the patient happy while we're doing something else. And then lastly, remember, once you peel all the muscles off, where the SI joint is, where the, where the facets are. So how do you palpate a facet through the erector spinae and the, fas- and the multifidus muscles. And now I made it more complicated for you, right? Because now you've got two layers of muscles, both with opposing fibers. Well, a facet joint's going to be real small, won't it? So in a facet pathology, the multifidus muscle goes into spasm too, most always, because it's acting like a guarding mechanism to the body saying, don't move. But if there's one spot in the middle of that muscle spasm corresponding to where the facet joint should be, and you hit it, and the patient sounds like a squeeze toy, what do you think the patient might have? A facet. But if you can feel that multifidus spasm, but you can't find that one tender spot where they sound like a squeeze toy, the multifidus muscle might be irritated. There might be some facet involvement, but it's probably not a full bone inflammation. So that might, to me, that might be the difference between a medial branch block versus an intraarticular block. Because if I can get that one spot and the patient goes, eek, there's an intra-articular block in their future. But if I seem to get just more of the multifidus and not the facet alone, well, maybe I'll do a medial branch and maybe I'll put some manipulation in there if I can get some other you know, findings that suggest more of a problem that might respond to manipulation. And then you get a twofer. I keep on hitting that wrong button. It's probably because the thing's worn off here. So facets, ligaments, or anything else. So now, because I'm running out of time, and I really have to get to the nitty-gritty of the part of the exam because I think that's the most important part of this whole session. We all do a general status exam really quick. That includes deep tendon reflexes, correct? What's the deep tendon reflex for L4? Patellar, knee. What's the one for S1? Achilles. What's the one for L5? Hamstring. I heard a lot of people say that. How many people do hamstrings for DTRs in lower extremities? Few, that's really good. Well, from now on, every one of you is going to do a deep tendon reflex for the hamstring and lower extremities, because what's the nerve that's most likely to be irritated in the lumbar spine? L5. Why not do an L5 DTR? How long does it take? Fraction of a second? So if you're sitting in your chair, you can palpate right behind your knee the tendon for the biceps femoris. Guess what you hit for the DTR for hamstring? Biceps femoris. You can do it sitting down. If you have some problems doing it sitting down, you usually have to have the patient scoot up the table a little bit. If not, you put the reflex hammer in your pocket and you do it when they're lying prone. You just bend the knee and then it's really easy to see and you'll get a nice twitch. There was a malpractice case in Hawaii that got lost for $750,000 because the surgeon didn't happen to do a hamstring DTR, but the post-op guy did and found it to be absent, so they tried to blame the surgeon for causing the loss of, a deep of the deep tendon reflex was absent before the surgeon touched the patient. It was a revision, and the guy had scar tissue. Meanwhile, the patient's pain was doing a lot better. He was suing the wrong surgeon, but that's another story. So deep tendon reflexes, we just went through. Um, I'm going to skip dermatomes and myotomes, and we'll talk about muscle strength. When you do a muscle examination, how do you guys note it in your record? Do you grade muscle strength on a scale from zero to five? I see some nods. I see some surprises. Well, the scale is pretty simple, full strength's five, no movement zero, and everything in between is graded. So when you do a motor exam, every muscle should say like um, dorsiflexion of the foot, instead of saying normal, its dorsiflexion of the foot was five slash five, or four slash five. And it's not a hard scale, it could be four plus or five minus, but you gotta grade each muscle movement. And you can't just say like that ER doc did when he did dorsiflexion of the foot and said motor function's intact, me, I know. You have to do all the muscles of the lower extremity. You're going to do dorsiflexion of the toes, plantar flexion, dorsiflexion, internal rotation, external rotation, knee flexion, knee extension, hip flexion, hip extension, hip abduction, hip abduction. Okay, you could have done that whole motor exam on that patient and done a thorough motor exam in quicker time than it took me to say it. And yet, dorsiflexion of the toes, fine, motor function intact. Yeah, not perfectly. So these, what I did is I, there's like 200 named orthopedic tests. There was a group of people here that used to try and stump my knowledge and I have to admit, I used to know about like 100, 125 named orthopedic tests. I probably remember now the formal names of about 75 and the other ones I'll remember the test and I just can't remember the name for the life of me. So there are many more. What I did for you is I put together a group of orthopedic maneuvers, these provocative tests that I like to do on most every patient because they give me a very good starting point to try and figure out what's going on. So what I want to do is walk you through those tests really quick, okay? So I'm not saying that there aren't more, and I'm not saying these are the only ones you should do, but these are ones that i picked out to help you concentrate on being able to provide more information than you had before with respect to the patient, fair enough. So I need a volunteer, but I preloaded this, so I have one already. So we're going to embarrass her. <laughs> Come on, let's go. If We can give her an applause or something. Everyone, Rochelle, Rochelle, everyone. Come on. Come on, let's go. Can you what? No. <laughs> Just do me one favor, because I did not have you sign a release. So please don't fall off the table. <laughs> well, first of all, let's do something else. Come here. Come here. Wait. No, come here. I have to do this just for curiosity's sake. So I'm going to have you, usually I have people stand over an exam table. So you can stand over here and like bend over a little bit, because we want to look at your back just out of curiosity. So remember, I look at her back and weight-bearing. Can I lift up the back of your shirt? You okay with that? Can I lift up the back of your shirt? Are you wearing a brace? or is that? <laughs> That's just your, okay, so... I can feel right now, and you won't be able to do this, but she's actually got a muscle spasm right here. So this muscle here is what? Going off to the side at an angle? Quadratus lumborum. So if I walk my fingers up the ilium and I hit the insertion of the quadratus lumborum, what's she going to do? Did I demonstrate that? You know what happens when you palpate something on a patient, it's tender, and you want to make sure it's tender, what do you do? Press it again. (laughs) All right, so she definitely has a quadratus lumborum on the right, okay? She also has, and it'll be a little bit harder to see, but maybe we turn around this way so everybody can see you. So you can't believe you're standing in front of a room full of people showing them your backside. <laughs> this will go down in history. But here, come here. Who are you? What's your name? Solomon. What is it? Solomon. 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 Here, do me a favor, Solomon, close your eyes. Give me your hand. So which... Longissimus muscle is tighter left or right? The, right the right stands like a sore thumb doesn't it right here so you're going to get a lot of tenderness in, right at the lower lumbar spine when you start to press because there's something going on there and I can tell right away too that she's also going to have a problem at T4 T5 because when I press it she's going to not like it you see that because that's one of the insertion sites that happens to be pulling for the longissimus muscle where it's pulling on the corner of the rib here. And in this case, it's causing a little tiny dip right between her shoulders, which if she wasn't wearing a shirt, you'd actually see that. And you, and you know that I was the spot because as soon as I pressed on it, what did she do? And I haven't palpated her back anytime recently. <laughs> okay. So there is something clearly going on here, all right? So now what I'm gonna have you do is sit, you gotta kinda hop up and sit on the table. So remember, please, it, don't take for, you have to take up your shoes, too. Just sign them off. So remember, I've already done my general status exam, my neuro exam, because I do a neuro exam on everybody. I have a stethoscope. I have an otoscope. I have all these nice little pinwheels and other things and things that I use on every single patient. I have done my, my um, you know, I've looked at, I've, I've auscultated her abdomen, her chest. I've done our deep reflexes reflex, everything. The first test I do on the list, well, first of all, for motor exam, well, let me get this way. The first test they do is minors. So for minors, what I did is I observed her when she got out of the chair. Did anybody pay attention to what she did when she got out of the chair? She, went, she supported herself, didn't she? She didn't just jump out. She was sort of trying to work herself out of the chair. That's a positive minor sign. The mo- positive minor sign does nothing except tell you that the patient might be sincere or that something's wrong. Because a lot of times when you call the patient or you have them get, they're sitting in the exam room you have them get up, and they jump right out of the chair, yeah, that would be um, a good indication that maybe it's not as severe as the patient's telling you, they just don't realize you're paying attention. That happens to be one of the signs of malingering, by the way, all right? But so I put it in there just because I happen to watch the patient. So the next one on the list is bectoruse. What's bectoruse? Well, normally, remember I said I've done the motor exam and I try and preserve movement So I throw bectoroos right in the middle of my muscle exam, my motor examination for the lower extremities. So I would have done dorsiflexion of the the toes, um, dorsiflexion of the foot, plantar flexion, internal rotation, external rotation. Now I tell the patient, straighten your leg for me. See how she goes all the way up? That's bectoroos. If the patient does that and nothing happens, that's fine, that's normal. Do that one. That's normal too. But what happens if the patient goes to stretch their leg out and they lean back? It's a nerve root stretch sign. That would be a positive bectoruse. What would a positive bectoruse be indicative of? A static radiculopathy, L4, L5, L5S1. Okay? So, bectoruse, nerve root stretch test, lumbar sacral plexus. Then I finished my motor exam. So, I'd have the patient push her legs apart, pull them together, pull them together, there you go. Lift your leg up. No, no, wait, just the thigh over here. Pull it up, pull it down, pull it down, there you go. And then you do the other side, but I missed one, didn't I? Smack me, because I blew right over it. I also do knee flexion extension, which is part of the muscle exam. So before I did hip abduction, abduction, I usually say, push, it, push against my hands as hard as you can, pull back, push, pull. So I have done that too, okay? So beck is in the middle of my motor exam. Next test, Faber-Patrick. You know what that one is? Everyone knows that one, right? What's Faber-Patrick a test for? It's actually, someone said SI, it's primarily hip, can also be SI, okay? But there's a cautionary tale here, and I did did you a favor, but you don't know it yet. Here's the favor. I stole the tablecloth off the table in the corner, so you have a pillow to lay on. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have you lay on your back for me. Okay, so for favor, Patrick, and don't worry, no one's going to see anything. For Faber-Patrick, bend your knee up. Okay, we'll do this knee if you'd like. It doesn't really matter, (laughs) whichever one you like, but let's do this one. (laughs) All right, bend the knee. All right, so for Faber-Patrick, what you have to do is you externally rotate the leg. It's flexion, abduction, external rotation. That's what the Faber is. It's not the guy's name. So Faber-Patrick is basically this, okay? If a patient has a hip pathology, That's pretty much all you have to do to make it light up like a Christmas tree because as you felt, that's what I felt move was the hip. If you put a little more pressure on it, it can become positive for an SI test. But the problem you have is, I can do a positive Faber-Patrick test on every single patient in this room. Why is that? Because if you over flex, abduct, and externally rotate the hip joint, what's it gonna do? hurt because you've gone to the edge of the paraphysiologic space. So when you see people doing stunts like this and then pushing down, everyone's going to be positive. You don't have to do that. Be gentle. You go to the end of the paraphysiologic space casually, and if you want to put a little pressure on it, you can, but that's it. Favorite Patrick, largely hip, some SI. Next one on the list, piriformis stretch test. Remember, piriformis muscle can irritate the sciatic nerve, causing sciatic-like symptoms, so we always want to look for that. Those are, what the piriformis does is externally rotate the leg, right? Everyone agree? It's like doing this. Okay? So what we want to do is we want to go opposite of that. So the way I do a piriformis stress is I'll stabilize the hip area and I'll inter- keep the knee bent and I'll internally rotate the leg because now what do you feel pulling when I do that? The piriformis. Another way, alternate way of doing it is just to keep the leg straight and just internally rotate the leg, but try and do that on a patient with a knee injury. Not too cool, okay? So the next one is straight leg raising. Straight leg raising is the most equivocal of any orthopedic test ever on the planet. Well, the problem is it's the one that's most often done, and it's the least specific of any single orthopedic test, unless you combine it with a bunch of other things. So the way to properly do a straight leg raising is you go gently and you you raise the patient's leg, but you tell the patient, let me know if you start to feel any pain, and of course tell me what kind of pain you have, and then when the patient says, ouch, you make sure you have them qualify, where is it, is it in your back, is it in your leg, is it radiating, and you make note of the distance, so you would say like positive straight leg raising at 45, well here, at 45 degrees with back and, and pain into the posterior thigh. Let's say that was her finding, okay? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put my hand back under her back, and I'm going to start to raise the leg again, and I'm going to feel, so I'm really at the lumbar sacral region, and I'm feeling what's moving until she says, ouch. Oh, and as I move the leg a little bit, I can see that that's the lumbosacral sacral junction in this case. But I also might feel it's the SI joint, or I also might feel it's the hip. So what's moving at the time she says, ouch, tells me, Information about what might be the pain generator. So you would say gold weight suggestive of lumbosacral, or gold weight suggesting hip, or gold weight suggesting SI. You have the degree of movement, which is in this case is 40. We write straight leg raising positive at 45 degrees for back and posterior leg pain, right? So let's say we then you got the 45 degree thing. So we back off a little bit, and you dorsiflex the great toe. That's called saccards. Saccards is positive. If you have a radiculopathy or radicular pathology for L4, L5, L5, S1, because you're stretching the nerve, nerve root stretch like Beckerou's, okay? Then I'll do, um, even I forgot the name all of a sudden, that's pretty bad, Braggard's. And for Braggard's, I'm dorsiflexing the whole foot. And now if she says, ouch, in the back of the thigh again, well, Braggard's is also a nerve root stretch, isn't it? But Braggard's is also positive for hamstring, but Cicard's is not. See how the pieces are fitting together? So then, if she says, Well, it's in the posterior thigh, which could be nerve root or could be hamstring, then I want to take hamstring off. So you do what's called the bow sign or bowstring sign. You bend the leg at 90 degrees and you poke up into the popliteal fossa. Because if it was nerve root, guess what would be tender if it was a radiculopathy? And if it's hamstring, you'll find tenderness or tightness at the tendons for the hamstrings. See that? Bowstring. So that helps us determine, so we're kind of sculpting where we're going with this so far. Then we'll do leg lowering Milgrams. What's that? Well, the oldest orthopedic test known to man on the planet comes from the Edwin Smith papyrus, which dates back 3,000 years B.C., case number 48. The patient raises their legs off the table, and if that causes pain, it's a sprain of the back. And the treatment was prostration, meaning they manipulated the patient. So the oldest known document, Western Civilization, documented manipulation to treat a back problem done with this orthopedic test pretty scary so what this test what both of these tests do together is raise intrathecal pressure which is a a valsalva's maneuver correct so if you have a patient that has a symptomatic spinal stenosis or a symptomatic nerve compression or symptomatic disc pathology what's going to happen when you increase intrathecal pressure the patient's going to go ow, or not be able to do it. So let's say she's workers' comp and she's faking, I say, raise your legs up off the table, and I'm not feeling anything contract on the abdomen. That's malingering. But if I tell the patient and ask her, can you hold your legs up, hold them up, and she can do it, we're already kind of leaning off the fact that, that this herniation may or may not be symptomatic. That's a good sign. And if you want to confirm that either way, bring your legs back up. You can, no one says you can't push a little harder to increase intrathecal pressure, and if they drop out, maybe there is something going on. But if that patient can hold their legs up under full resistance, I don't care how many disc herniations they have on that back. I don't necessarily think we got a surgical case so, so quickly. That's a very important one. And then just to make sure I'm repeating that test by doing the same thing in a slightly different manner, raise your legs up by yourself to about here. Sorry. She's going to be working out by the time we go home, right? And then as long as she can go up and down, then that basically confirms or helps you get an idea for whether or not that pathology and imaging study is symptomatic because those will be grossly positive with an active disc pathology, radiculopathy, myelopathy, okay? So remember the first thing that moves when I bring your leg up or when you move is the hip. The next thing that moves is the SI joint. And another way of doing gold waste, by the way, is just to measure the degree of movement where the pain starts, which it's better just to feel. And then the lumbar sacral region kicks in, and then the lumbar. I mean, that's the whole status of where things go. So what happens if, I was, if we were able to only get up to 45 degrees on her and she said, ouch, but if I was able to take both of her legs all of a sudden and go to 90 degrees, what would that say? What did I do when I moved the pelvis together with both legs? I just told you, moving the pelvis together, we took the hips and the SI joints out of the equation, so now you had more movement. But on the other hand, if I go to lift both of them up together and I got a lot less than I did before, it's probably lumbosacral, because you put the movement into the lumbar region faster so that L5S1 or L4L5 is starting to really manifest like the potential idea. You see how that plays biomechanically? Okay. Okay. You get to turn over for me. And what does she have when she goes to move? Stiffness. What do we think we have? A little bit of an inflammatory pathology someplace, which we all already know we have some inflammation at the, at the insertion, at least to the quadratus lumborum. You kind of got to lie down. You can do it any way you want to be comfortable. If you want to use this as like a chest pillow or something, it might be easier. Okay. So at this point, when she lies down, now, every, now I do the part of the back exam, and we're going really over, aren't we? Now that I do the part of the back exam where I'm, I'm palpating the back, non-weight-bearing, so I'm doing a bunch of stuff here to palpate all the structures that are in spasm. Um, Solomon, come here. So, close your eyes again, and tell me, what, well, you don't even have to close your eyes. You can see it. Which muscle still in spasm? The, the right longissimus. Remember the quadratus lumborum I was palpating when she was standing up? Is that tender anymore? No, that disappeared. Secondary muscle spasm. So, whatever was causing the quadratus lumborum spasm to be present when she was standing is more of a regarding mechanism. But this is still here, suggesting we're going to have a problem somewhere with the innervation for the longissimus between T10 and L2. So, as I'm palpating the back, I'm going to come around the rib cage, because I'm going to palpate every single lever, level at a time anyway, it doesn't matter. But as I'm coming around the, the bottom of the rib cage over here, this is going to be T12. So T11, T12 is going to be right there. Well, it's going to be right there. Did anybody hear that? Hmm. But so here's T10, T11, and I'm not really getting much. Here's T12, L1, Yeah, I'm not getting anything there either. And as I'm palpating down the rest of the spine, I'm not getting squat. But if I go back to that T11, T12, I don't have a happy camper. So what do we, remember, remember I said that person who's gonna sit on the table crooked is gonna have like a thoracolumbar junction syndrome? What are we leaning towards right here? Because you saw straight leg raising and all the other stuff was relatively normal anyway. We were giving you fake findings to tell you what the test would be. But where am I starting to focus my attention already? Even though she's complaining of back pain, it's coming from over here. It's got nothing to do with her low back. And we really didn't work on this You know, it's not like we stage this, but look what she's wearing. This got braces in here too, man. So she's got a back problem she's trying to obviously nurse, but we're going to fix it before she leaves pain week. Okay, so we've palpated everything in her back. We've noticed that there's no tenderness here. There's sacroiliac joints aren't palpating positive, lumbar sacral facets, everything, all the multifidus muscles are all good, but I hit that T11, T12, I get a crybaby. If I hit that one up here at T4, T5, she's not going to be happy either. It's right. Because that's the, also the other insertion point for this muscle. So she's actually got a little bit of a rib arthropathy there too. So we finished the palpatory and the visual exam. We got that all mapped out. Now we're going to finish our orthopedic exam. So the next one on our list is... Where's the slide thing? There we go. Hibs. What's Hibs? Well, for hibs, you're bending the knee at 90 degrees, and if you hadn't done that L5 DTR yet, now you pull out your reflex hammer because you can hit it and you'd get a nice little twitch right there. So hibs, if you put your hand around the hip, what you do with hibs is you bend the knee at 90 degrees and you rock it back and forth. And Rochelle, what do you feel moving under my fingers? You're supposed to answer that question. Your hip, right? Yeah, you can actually feel the hip move under your fingers. That's that's a, a test for a hip pathology. And yes, you know, when you have a bunch of patients who are a little bit older, they might have osteoarthritis in the hip. Yes, you need to do that because they're going to get spasm of the quadratus lumborum trying to protect the hip. So you have to do the orthopedic tests like this. Then the next thing we do is called knockless. What's knockless? Well, remember Bectorus was a nerve root stretch for the lumbar sacral plexus? What's the anterior thigh's plexus level? Lumbar. What's the nerve root innervation? Two, three. Maybe a little one, maybe a little four. So, but it's definitely the lumbar plexus, L2, L3, little four, little one. So, if I do this, that's a nerve root stretch for the lumbar plexus. That's called knockless. The other day, I was over at a friend's office, and the patient's lying on his back on the exam table, and I can see this big, huge bulge, which really was the um, uh, multifidus muscles in spasm at L2, L2, L3. I said, that guy's going to have a positive knock list. He said, yeah, you don't know that. I said, watch. He p- bends the leg and he says, oh, shut up, get out of here. So, you know, you're combining the sight of what you see, because you can see the multifidus spasm right there was short, small segment. It was easy to pick out. The guy's got an L2 radiculopathy. So, in any event, knock list. Then the next thing I do, and this is my favorite orthopedic test on the planet for sacroiliac problems, okay? And that's called Yeomans. And you have to practice this one, it's extremely important. For yeomans, and I'm going to have to switch legs because I can't reach across, but for yeomans, what you use is you bend the leg at 90 degrees, and she has a sick problem too. There's another test here which is unnamed, but I'll get to that in a second. So yeomans, you bend the leg at 90 degrees, all right? You kind of grab the, patient, the patient's leg under the knee. You put your hand and fan it out over the SI joint to stabilize it, and you bring the leg up because when you bring the leg up, it should have some movement to it. If it feels like you're hitting a wall where the patient says, ouch, you have a problem. If the patient says, ouch, it's what? Inflamed. If you feel it and you're hitting a wall when you go to do this, like on her, if Solomon came up here right now, he'd see that I can't get anywhere with this one. It's stuck, and she's also moaning. So what does that say? Stuck, moaning, it's a little painful, it's a little inflamed, and it's stuck. Now let's do the other side just for the hell of it, because now you got me curious. Okay, you ready? Okay, the other side goes up a little bit better, but you can see the difference from side to side, and she moaned because I couldn't stabilize the pelvis because my arm's problematic, and this one was moving when we stretched that one, <laughs> so Yeomans is positive. In this case, for a sacroiliac problem, it happens to be on the right that's mildly inflamed to boot, but if the, remember what I said happens, the quadratus lumborum rotates the ilium up like this, right? so if her ilium's constantly being rotated up, Because in weight-bearing, like when she's sitting or walking, and it's always being pulled up. Would you imagine it might get stuck? Perfect case for manipulation or mobilization by a therapist, osteopath, chiropractor, because that thing should go relatively easy because it's not that inflamed, but if it's been there for a long time, you still might want to inject it before you manipulate it. So, so far, we're finding on our patient, Rochelle, a little bit of an SI problem, we'll call it an arthropathy, with a thoracolumbar junction caused by a T11, T12 problem. How long have you been nursing this back pain? A while? while? What's a while? You should have called earlier. (laughs) All right, why don't you sit up for me? Last two really quick. And we can actually do it on her, because I would actually think we might get a positive finding in this case. Yeah, you know what? Come down. We'll do it, because you're going to get a positive finding. (laughs) You want to? Okay, stand up. Bend forward for me. All right, she goes, she's actually pretty good. She stretches a lot, come back. Let's see what happens. So what I'm gonna do right now is I'm gonna squeeze your pelvis together and have you bend forward again. Okay, we didn't get a positive one on her but she also spends a lot of time stretching. The idea is if you have a sacroiliac or or a hip problem and you take that out of the picture by squeezing the pelvis together, the patient goes down further faster because if they start to bend and they can't go too far without causing pain, well, that might be because there's a hip or a back, But if you, a hip or a uh, SI, but if you take it out of the picture, all of a sudden, now they can bend their back. But what happens if you squeeze the pelvis together and they go less with more pain? What does that tell you? You accelerated movement to the lumbosacral plexus faster, lumbosacral area faster, so now it's probably in the back. And you've all seen a patient that does this, right? They can't bend forward, but then all of a sudden, you have them sit down, and now they can put on their shoes without a problem. That's a sitting belt test, also known, don't ask me why, because it wasn't my fault, Glick's test. Um, it started out in 1990. In 1990-something, I was doing a back exam class for somebody, and it was an unnamed orthopedic test, so someone said, well, you should call it Glick's, and they were just laughing. And then it started showing up in medical records when I was doing, like, case reviews, for, even for stuff out of state, which was blowing my mind. So Glick's test. Not real orthopedic test because I've never did the science to validate it, but I don't think any of these guys ever validated their own anyway. But it's a sitting belt test. And the other thing that I do is sacroiliac range of motion. The reason being, and we'll have you turn sideways, hold on to the bar over here. So what you can do is if you put your fingers right over the SI joint, and if they're wearing pants, you can tuck your fingers into the belt loop for stability, and you have the patient bring up their legs one at a time like that. So bring up your right leg first. Now when she brings up her right leg, it moves under my left thumb. Put it down. And then pay attention to my left thumb. Tell me if you feel it. Mm-hmm. Bring your right leg up. See how it drops under my thumb on the left? She might not because there's a brace in the way. Put it down. Now do the right leg. And, no, do the left leg. The other right leg. Yeah, that's it. See? When she does the left, I'm not feeling it translate to the other side. So that's supporting the fact that I think I'm getting a left sacroiliac problem. I can even tell you what direction it's in. It's rotated forward. And the reason why, when I palpated when she was lying down, I can actually tell which way the, the, the leg's going to go. And plus, there's another unnamed orthopedic test in there, too. When a patient has an ilium that's rotated anteriorly, almost notoriously, and you can see it for yourself, I mean, if you start looking at your patients, when you go to bend their knee at 90 degrees, their butt jumps up. And I don't know if you caught it when we did that on hers. Her, she got a little bump there when I raised her leg. But it's an unnamed orthopedic test, so we don't really train that one. So... Basically, that's what we do when it comes to looking at a patient. You put all the pieces together. You see where the examination find, finding brings you. You include the pictures of what the imaging study might show because there might be something on the imaging study that was clinically relevant. But based on her clinical examination, if she tells me her back pain is right-sided, just go into your leg. No, it's pretty Your left-sided pain? Really? Left? That's kind of cool because she's got, because where, where was she tender when I was poking? Everything's on the right. So if she's feeling anything on the left, that's because her body's trying to compensate for something, but we're not going to be treating the left side. Guess what we're going to be treating? Yeah, because that's where all your clinical exam findings are. So whatever she has on an MRI, in this case, I'd probably be ignoring because I didn't see a single finding that would correlate with any pathology on an MRI. Makes sense? So your exam findings are what you go by. The MRI becomes your confirmatory thing. And then even if you have to make some, you can have a seat, but we'll take care of you before you leave. So even if you have to make a decision and determine, like, if you say, okay, it's a disc pathology, I'm going to use those MRI results to help determine what to do. Because depending on what the presence of the disc is, if you, like, sat in the imaging study session, we talked about if it's a centrally herniated disc, and it's affecting, like at L5-S1, and it's facing the S1 nerve root, are we going to do an L5 transferaminal, or are we going to do an L5 interlaminar? Interlaminar. Got the idea? So you can use the pathology on the MRI even to better determine what interventional injection you do. In the practices that I've been with over the years, we've always had a 70 to 80% chance of success rate, at least for blocking that pain, when we do an interventional block. I'm not doing this diagnosis by a series of spinal injection. Some people we see, it never fails to amaze me, we call it diagnosis by twister. You ever see those? SI, transferaminal, medial branch, medial branch again. Let's do an SI again with no clinical rationale as to why. I'm going to have clinical examination findings that say this is what I'm doing, I'm going to look at the imaging study and try and put the pieces together and say, well, based on the fact that there is this on the imaging study and my exam says this might be symptomatic, this is the direction I'm going. But you have to put the pieces together. Either part without all the pieces kind of leaves you hanging. It's what the patient tells you, what you see on the exam. I mean, you were watching the, the, the palpatory stuff in real time. You saw it for yourself. And so if you haven't done it, practice. It is so easy to do and so easy to learn. There's a couple different textbooks for orthopedic maneuvers. I think the the more recent one, that's probably a really good one, because those interventional pain guys know Waldman. Waldman has great books on a bunch of different things. I love the Waldman's textbooks on common and uncommon pain syndromes. Any primary care doc with those two books on his shelf can treat a variety of musculoskeletal stuff that they never knew they can touch without even referring the patient out. And it's really cool when you send the patient out for a shoulder pathology and you're telling the, orthopedic, the orthopedist what the patient has for a shoulder pathology without even them looking, because otherwise they'd be looking for a rotator cuff all the time and there's a whole bunch of other things that can cause shoulder pain. Um, this is a free chart you can download. It's not perfectly anatomically correct, but it was one of those things that had a lot of different things with respect to the pelvis and muscles that we typically talk about. So it's in the slide deck, you can, they allow you to, to download it, use it as you will. Um, other common causes of back pain, well in this case, we have diagnosed Rochelle with an, a T11, T12 inflammation, and a right mild SI arthropathy. So I probably bet the thoracolumbar junction, T11, T12 is her primary pathology, and the, the SI is probably her second, but since they've both been there for a while, they're probably both pathologies that we'll have to treat. I can virtually guarantee that she a 50-50 shot of, let's say, something like a manipulation helping the facet, but because it's been there for a while, it might need to be injected. So my favorite way of treating ones that have been there for a while is intra-articular injection, a little bit of steroid, a little bit of anesthetic, makes the manipulation easier to do, and then manipulate And then the steroid helps it heal faster, so it decreases the likelihood of ever having to do that again. That way, we don't even have to do this two or three times a week. B.S. where you have to go for manipulation. Because, I mean, I, I, I don't mean to burst anybody's bubble if you use manipulation on a regular basis, but if I don't get a response when I try and treat a patient once, I'm not doing it again. And the average number of times that we've used manipulation to treat a patient is never really more than one, two, maybe three at best. I don't think I've ever treated a patient more than three times in my entire life with manipulation. But I'm just saying, piriformis, remember, false sciatica due to you know, not due to nerve root, but due to the buttock coming out, and then that can become a little bit complicated too because there's an anatomical anomaly in which the pronial division of the static nerve pierces through the piriformis. Well, that happens about 12% of the time, and those don't respond to piriformis stress testing because now you, or uh, piriformis stretching, because now you have the nerve piercing through the muscle. What happens when you stretch that one? Woof. So here, here's another little little clinical pearl on that. So this is going to need to be blocked. You're going to need to put a steroid there, Correct. But the average person who does a piriformis block goes to where the tenderness insertion is by the trochanter. So how much of that steroid gets to where the nerve is being entrapped? None. You have to get to that zone where you want to avoid when you're doing a, you know, a, an injection in the buttock region, that safe zone you try and avoid. This is exactly what you want to hit. So I highly recommend you do something like that under fluoro, and you'd be really careful. Some people sometimes will even use you know, electric stim just to make sure they're not going to hit the nerve just to be close. If you're, no, if you're confident with your anatomy and you're comfortable with your palpatory skills, you can feel where that nerve is and just get real close with that and, and avoid it. SI, remember, you can have it, it can be inflamed. It can be stuck. It can be inflamed and stuck. If it's inflamed, we inject it. If it's stuck, we manipulate it. If it's stuck and inflamed, we inject it and manipulate it. There's a variation of the theme here. What if it's unstable? Because we've all heard of those, too. Okay, now we're into la-la land. What do you do for an unstable SI joint? I've never fused one, but we have done some other things. We've seen some recent promise with PRP. You know, Dr. Blattman has done some PRP injections. Way back in the day, we used to do prolotherapy and some other things. Anything you can do to get some extra tissue into that joint stabilize it stacks the cards in your favor. But it's all a little bit speculative, all off-label. You, you gotta you know, use your judgment and do what's right, but at least you have the clinical indication and you're gonna get that instability because you're gonna see it during an exam. It's gonna feel like jello and you're gonna wonder what the hell's going on here, okay? So thoracolumbar junction, of which Rochelle is our example. So you can have a problem at the thoracolumbar junction that causes pain that radiates to the top of the hip or into the inguinal region. It can be from myofascial referral or ilioinguinal inguinal femoral nerve irritation because of upper lumbar radiculopathies. Be really careful. That same scenario can cause sciatic-like symptoms, so that you end up, because of the, ilia, the, the quadratus lumborum going to the iliac crest, that bypasses the low back, but it irritates the sciatic nerve, causing sciatic symptoms. I can't tell you how many patients I've seen in my clinical career that have had sciatica and had God knows how many treatments focused to the lower back, and it turns out they have a piriformis and a thoracolumbar, so they have a problem here and here, and nothing here, which is probably why the... The medial branch blocks and the the radiofrequency ablations and the transforaminal epidurals and the physical therapy—nothing worked. So you got to look elsewhere. Um, Basically, if you put all your pictures together, you know all your findings together. Once you have it, and if you still have a question, if it's something that's a red flag, call somebody, get some help. If you have all the pieces, but you're still not sure and you're comfortable that the patient's not in any danger. Maybe we need a new imaging study. Maybe we need an electrodiagnostic study because you need an extra piece of the puzzle. But this is when you do it. You don't order it just for the heck of it. The biggest problem I see now is when you go to order an MRI, what does the insurance company tell you? Even if the patient has an acute onset of low back pain radiating down to the back of the leg with loss of bowel and bladder function, what do they tell you? You have to wait six weeks. Yeah, but the little thing that you're going by says, unless there are red flags, does that qualify as a red flag? Yeah, but they don't pay attention to the red flags. They do what's convenient. So you have to call up and then argue because you'd never want to make that patient wait six weeks. So sometimes we order new imaging studies. But we always correlate the findings of what we see uh, on imaging to what we can feel, see, touch, and hear with the patient. That's pretty much about it. So what happens when you see something like this? Now that we told you about all the examination findings and what to do, what's your problem with this patient? This patient is fused at L5-S1, see, with a radical aminectomy, but what did they fuse them in? They fused them in a grade 2 spondylolisthesis with nerve root compression at L5. What do you do with that one? Beats me. But is that patient going to be any kind of reasonable exam finding that you can pick up? No, this is just a patient that's in exquisite pain no matter what you do. Is any medication going to help this? Barely take the edge off. For those of you who sat through the pain pathophys session, what do they say about a spear in a foot? This is like a ballistic missile in your foot. And I don't know what you're going to do with that. And no surgeon wants to go back in and fix someone else's badly butchered job like that because they're afraid to touch them. Good luck. I don't know what to do with these patients. How about this one? This is a problem because, first of all, I don't even know what the heck this was supposed to be, not to mention that it broke. But what was this? This is called a pedicle screw because the screw is supposed to be in the pedicle, but this goes through the IVF in disc space. If you look here, here's the, body of, here's the front of the L5. Here's the front of the sacrum. They're also, here's the back of the L5. Here's the back of the sacrum. They're fused on a grade 2 spondylolisthesis on top of that with nerve recompression at L5 bilaterally and in the L4 at the framing because the screw goes through it. Not to mention, the, laminar, the screw securing the laminar hook came loose, and God knows what this little dorky thing here was that broke. Is this patient in miserable pain? Uh, yeah. What do you do? Well, in this case, you got to take the hardware out. So, um, lastly, I went through that one in the imaging study class, so I'm not going to go through it again. But basically, to sum things up, look, back pain is not a pathology. It's nothing more than a symptom. Hopefully, I've given you a new way of looking at the patient, given you some clinical pearls or something you can add to your examination of that patient. If there's one thing you can do to get a little more information than you had before to alter the course of patient care to end up with an outcome, then I feel like I've accomplished the task, and I'm really happy, and that's all I was trying to do today. So none of us have all the answers. I think what makes me good at what I do is just because I've seen so many of everybody's train wrecks, so some of the weird stuff that might be to you or the unusual stuff to you is the stuff that is common to me, so I'm more likely to recognize it, just like Dr. Argoff was able to recognize some of those strange myelopathic conditions that I've never seen before and couldn't ever begin to figure out what they were. But you'll be doing this too, I promise you. So with that, Um, Thank you for your time. I truly apologize for going over. We didn't do that bad. Um, If you have a case that you have some problems with, please feel free to reach out because I want to see something that I haven't seen before. I find that really cool. So if you have a problematic case that you're not so sure about, I've kind of now, I'm getting better at perfecting the whole telemedicine stuff so we can share screens, share information. I can look at imaging studies and we can see what's going on and talk about the patient. I'm more than happy to help you work you through it. So, and I really like challenging cases, so, you know, feel free to reach out. So, hope you guys found it very valuable. Hope you enjoyed Pain Week. Thank you for hanging out. I know we went over, so I always do. Sorry. Too talkative, I guess. But thank you. So, if you liked it, don't forget in the little app, you have to select the five-star thing, and then hit submit for all the stuff. That way, they let me do this again. Next year, I'd like to do an hour or two on treatment, and the way that I would plan on doing that would be maybe give you a different clinical scenario that might work for each of the different treatments that are available, so maybe we can better identify what treatment might work better for each patient, too. I think that would be a cool twist, but we'll see what we can do. So thank you guys again. Please enjoy Pan Week. Safe travels, and those of you from Florida, hope you keep your families and friends safe.